say something. You want me to start? They're waiting. I always start. Why don't you change it up, man? That's the routine. Hey, we got to keep the show fresh. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> I'm not prepared. I didn't know you were going to do this. Denny, help! That's not helping. Thanks, Denny. That, that's great. That's, you just keep your fucking finger on that button. Or shove it up your ass. I don't care. At least you're contributing. That's true. Yeah, he's in there doing Dick. something. Or Denny. Well, okay. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Gaming AM. Greatest podcast in the world. I am Tom Tolios, Tyso. And with me, as always, is my somewhat... Decent friend. I'd rate him like a six out of ten, maybe a seven if he does something nice for me. Rad Ray Price. Yay. Hey. There you, you uh, wanted an intro, you got one. That's a good he one, is man. the uh he is the Chaozuo to my son Goku. <laughs> wow. What a downgrade. I'm feeling bitter because you put me on the spot. Who even knows who that is? Like if they like have a passing Interest in Dragon Ball. They're like, who the fuck is Chow's? <laughs> okay, let me see if I can uh, put this in terms that the plebs will understand. Uh, with me, as always, is the salacious crumb to my Emperor Palpatine. There you go. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. You weren't even as funny as I my- was. <laughs> Although you were kind of funny. Yeah. And my, you uh, poked out C-3PO's eyes, which even the Emperor never did. That's true. Yeah. I, and I can't do that laugh, really. That, eh. My voice doesn't right. go high enough for that. Well, at least you're still a step above Denny. That's true. Poor Denny. Who would he be? That uh, uh, He'd be that frog that burps outside of Jabba's palace? No, nah, he'd be the one that gets eaten by the frog that burps. <laughs> Why? I love it. Or he'd be the uh, the mechanical spider that we know you love that walks along in the background when Luke enters the uh, Jabba's palace. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh, my God. I forgot that even back then they were doing mechanical spiders. Um, we're saying that because we just had a conversation of how tired I am of um, uh, CGI spiders. What were some of the movies we cited with CGI spiders? It was like the Transformers. Remember, I think it was like Soundwave. Yeah. Had like Michael Bay mm-hmm. mechanical spiders. There's just been a number of them that had mechanical CGI spiders. I'm tired of it. I didn't know they had one in... Jedi, though, I forgot about that. Or I probably knew. Well, it's not like it's a threatening one. It's just kind of something that scurries along in the background. And actually, to bring up my Star Wars nerd knowledge, it's actually something called the Biomar Monk. Oh, my I, this God. This is pretty sad that I know this, but <laughs> I, I've already committed. So yeah. basically what they What's are, its backstory, Tom? I don't know what that particular one's backstory is. I'm sure that Delray published some compilation of characters that appeared and things that appeared in the background in Jabba's Palace. There's probably like a book out there of like tales from Jabba's Palace. There's a whole book about Dengar, so I'm sure there is. The bounty hunters are kind of cool. You can you could do cool stuff with them. Visually, they're appealing. It's the whole reason for Boba Fett's appeal. Right. The backstory of those things is that they are people who have had their brains removed and put in these mechanical spiders. <laughs> And they act as servants because it's some form of spiritual transcendence or some bullshit. That's insanity. That they, there's like that elaborate of a backstory there's for something a like that. Story like like Dengar is on screen. How long is Dengar on screen? Less than, Less than three seconds, right? You just see that toilet paper covered asshole for like a two or three frames, and then 
That's it. He's gone. I can't believe there's like backstory. And there was that whole thing we heard about the inner workings of uh, Darth Vader's suit on Red Letter Media, where they were talking about all the different features that Darth Vader's suit had. And I was just like, who wrote all this? Where did all this come from? There's so much information, way too much information about how Darth Vader suit and what all the buttons do on his chest. And- yeah. Well, it's all designed to sell to people like what I used to be. Yeah. That's what it's for. It's, you know, we're going to put out the complete visual guide of Star Wars. So you buy it and you look at a picture of Darth Vader. There's this, this diagram around him where like it, a line points to each little thing on the picture and it tells you what that is. Yeah. And then for more detailed stuff, here's the inside of Darth Vader's mask. And here's what the lenses, what spectrums the lenses can see. In, and here's how the breathing thing works. And again, it's interesting stuff if you're really into Star Wars. On that nerd level, I used to be really into it. Yeah. Now if I pick up a visual guide, it's more because I'm just interested in seeing stuff like scale, mm-hmm. like the Republic ships from the Clone Wars era, because I'm watching the Clone Wars cartoons. It's like, I want to know, like, how big are those things in comparison to a person? Like, how many could fit in there? Yeah, yeah. Like, that that kind of stuff is kind of neat. But, mm-hmm. like, knowing how fast they can fly is just pointless or how the I am engines get their power like that kind of stuff doesn't mean anything yeah it's a shame but uh you know i have the uh the, all the star trek technical manuals i have the next generation technical manual the deep space nine technical manual in there they detailed the saucer slide out sequence so that if something happens to the warp drive section the saucer section fails can crash land on a planet and then they actually showed that exactly the way it's described in the technical manual they showed it in Star Trek Generations. But I remembered reading in the technical manual that the ship is unsalvageable once this happens. So I was like, oh, I'm seeing this cool thing, but I know that that means no more Enterprise. And also the rest of this movie is super shitty. I didn't like that movie at all. Speaking of Star Trek, very quickly, I had a conversation with a friend. I play Final Fantasy XIV. Okay. So it's an MMO. So what I'll do is I'll sit down with this friend and me and her, we'll just talk and talk and talk and talk for hours and stuff. She's watching Voyager for the first time. And, um, well, I'm getting to the point. So we're talking about our favorite Starfleet captains. And I, first of all, I said, well, the original series is my favorite. It's just my favorite because it's pushing boundaries. She's like, I grew up with next generation. I'm like, next generation never really clicked with me. It's not that I don't like it. It's the way you feel about Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. It's not that it, it's bad. It just doesn't click with me. Yeah. I feel it's a very safe show, and I like something to be a bit more courageous and take some chances. The prospect of DS9 is so interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Well, we're talking about Voyager, and she brings up how like she likes Kirk, Picard, Janeway, and then she doesn't care about any of the others. And okay. I, my order is Kirk, Picard, Cisco, Archer. Yeah. And then I put up like about 40 <laughs> greater than signs. <laughs> Than Janeway, because you know we're playing Final Fantasy, so we're te- we're typing, <laughs> and she's like, "Why do you hate Janeway so much?" And I'm like, "Well, besides, let her me having- count the ways." And then well, you pull out like a <laughs> this giant long list out of your pocket. I guess the the biggest reason I can't stand her, and we're going to be delving into minor spoiler territory here. So if you've never watched Voyager, the first recommendation is don't. Yeah, doesn't really, yeah, you know what? No, forget it. We're not doing a spoiler alert for Voyager. You just shouldn't watch it anyway. Right, but if you're going to watch it, then and you're going to listen to this, then you're going to know that basically how the show ends. So just be warned. There was always something about Janeway that just bugged me. It was just yeah. like there's a, there's a sort of arrogance to her. It wasn't like 
the voice wasn't enough, huh? To be immediately just like, you know, Mr. Chicote. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it wasn't really that. There was just this kind of like imperious element to the character that just put me off. Yeah, uh, Kirk didn't have it. I mean, Kirk was a renegade, but that was kind of what made you him know he cool. wasn't really in the series though. He was a very by the book captain. That rogue stuff didn't come till the movies really. Like Star Trek Two was like the first time you really saw that. I think. It didn't seem like to me to have that element that much. That I guess I just mean if you go into Star Trek, the original series blind, you've got this captain that's like fraternizing with the crew and he's <laughs> getting into fist fights with people and, you know, he's taking chances all the time and rolling the dice on success and stuff. He is a maverick. Yeah, yeah. And I think that those maverick elements are overplayed, especially in the J.J. Abrams reboot. It's like, it's like that's all there is to the character. Yeah. I'm this reckless maverick and I take chances. Like there's more to him than that. Yeah. If you ever really watch the original show and you get over your your own horrible misconception that he's actually a bad actor because he's not a bad actor. No. He definitely has some moments in there that are funny from an acting standpoint, but there are also some really great character moments for Kirk, too. What you have to understand about any TV from that era, really, is that we're just coming off the era of radio, right? Where we had to overact and yeah. we had to emote in these ways to convey to the audience what we were what we were up to so when we get into tv that sort of carries into like the first decade of television and kirk is a very different protagonist from a lot of other people that were on tv at the time because cowboy shows were really big and you know the cowboy characters were always like you know i'm a good dad or even if i'm branded and i've been kicked out of the union and i've been sent out into the badlands like, I'm still a good guy, and I'm quiet. I don't overstate myself. You know, I just do what needs to be done. Like, here's Kirk. It's like he's a very unconventional character. I kind of look at Kirk, uh, William Shatner's performance as Shakespearean. Yeah. And if you've ever watched traditional, classic Shakespearean acting, it's something that could be qualified as bad. Like, the guys like Sir Lawrence Olivier, mm-hmm. they're very few and far between. And even if you watch Sir Lawrence Olivier, like, there's a very quaint sort of... I don't really know how to describe it, but there's just this kind of quaint way in which he portrays his roles. It's just because someone's a Shakespearean actor, you can count on a lot of overacting. To get back to my point, we were talking about Kirk. So Kirk was the Maverick. So that's why Kirk is my favorite. Mm -hmm. I would classify Picard as my next favorite solely on the strength of Patrick Stewart as an actor Mm -hmm. who I really like. And then I would say Cisco simply because I didn't watch all of Deep Space Nine, and I intend to. Yeah. But just kind of watching the way Cisco did things, he could be a hard ass at times, and a hard ass was what was required because he's sort of like at this universal crossroads, mm-hmm. and you're dealing with a lot of different cultures at a lot of different times, and he's kind of out there on the fringe during a time of war. Yeah, and he has to make a lot of snaps. See, the interesting decisions. thing is he's out there on the fringe, like you say, but then when the war happens, that's the front line. I mean, that's the portal through which any enemy forces enter mm-hmm. our territory. So now Deep Space Nine goes from being this quaint little shop out in the boonies to the most important place yeah. in the fe- in Federation territory. Yep. And he's in charge of it. He's in charge of everything that happens. He's in charge of the war effort. And he's he, has he to had to do of- a lot of things that 
you know, I'm not going to spoil anything because I encourage everybody to watch Deep Space Nine. It's not only my favorite Star Trek, but possibly my favorite television series I've ever seen. And I named my firstborn child after a character on that show. So believe me when I tell you that this is one of the best shows you'll ever see in your life. What I find interesting about I want to quickly say that Cisco makes very courageous decisions on the show. He has and to. That's why yeah. that, and because he has to. And I like that. What I find interesting is that you who I would deem is sort of a pop culture traditionalist. Mm. Like you're not the type of person that likes when things deviate from the established aspects. Like I know that Street Fighter 2 is still your favorite out of all the Street Fighter games. Like hyper fighting is your favorite. Mm. You know, you're not as big of a fan of the later games as you are of the earlier games. You know, like when it comes to that stuff, you kind of like the mold by which it was established, but Deep Space Nine completely breaks that mold. Yep. And it's an interesting kind of dissonance from you to like Deep Space Nine more than any other Star Trek. Well, here's what it it's is. unlike any other Star Trek. Well, here's what it is um, with um, with Deep Space Nine. Like you always had those episodes of Star Trek. I always preferred in the original series and Next Generation, which both fit into that mold. I always enjoyed the episodes dealing with the characters on the ship better than I enjoyed the episodes where we're on Planet X with Alien Race X. You know, and there's guest stars and these things. You know, I like just the established characters. I like the episodes that are just on the ship, and that's it. You know, Voyager was the same thing. Like, Voyager had episodes on the ship, but it also had episodes on planets, which were more boring than the boring episodes on the ship. But when you get to Deep Space Nine, all the episodes are on the ship because that's all there is, is the ship. It can't move. It can't go to Planet X and meet boring alien race acts and right. you know the relationship dynamics have to take front and center because you've got these people that are occupying this limited space all the time so you've got not only your core cast but then everybody comes to you now mm-hmm. and so you've got not only the core cast but this incredible group of supporting recurring characters that are always coming around yeah. there are like I can probably off the top of my head count like eight different characters that are like recurring that come there and you're like, this is cool. I'm glad this guy's here. Deep Space Nine has a unique opportunity among Star Trek to set up its lore. Yeah. But I want to get back to I'm getting us way off track. We're trying to get to why Janeway sucks. So at the end of the series, no surprise, because the Borg have been a recurring villain. At the end of the series. And their kids. Yeah. And (laughs) as I was editing that story. I thought about whether or not to edit out my laughter, and I left it in. Oh, please, yeah. That has I, I to left stay it in because, there. Uh, I was laughing so much listening to myself laugh <laughs> because I knew how stupid the whole thing was, and it just made me laugh even more, so I left it in. But at the end, Janeway loses a bunch of the crew. They all get killed. Like, a bunch of them get killed. I don't even know. remember which ones actually survive. Mm. And she has the opportunity to manipulate time to save her friends, and she does it. Mm-hmm. She actually alters history because she's a fucking failure as a captain and she couldn't save the lives of her command crew. Yeah. I've seen Kirk and Picard in those same situations and they made the tough choice. Now, granted they never lost any of their command crew. They never lost any of the recurring characters, but there were times they could have gone back in the past and saved people important to them. Even if those people only appeared in one or two episodes or if they were just that episode, like the Joan Collins episode, mm-hmm. uh, City on the Edge of Forever yep. in the original series. Yep. And Kirk made the courageous decision not to go back in time and change things. If you think about the animated series, when Spock goes back and watches his own childhood, oh, yeah. which is one of the coolest episodes of any Star Trek 
original series. I don't care whether it's live or animated. That was a fucking That's a phenomenal good one. Yeah, episode. I like that one. It's probably the standout episode of that entire of yeah. that season, which is really an unofficial fourth season of the show anyway. Totally. If you can get past the, you know, it's filmation. Yeah, the filmation. You know, it's he, you know, and, He-Man and, you know, they made all that crap. And the missing checkoff in favor of some weird alien. With three arms. Right. Didn't he have three arms? They had, like, I don't yeah. know. I think there was like a third arm, and it was like it was weird. It's like in his chest or something. I'm like this is just a dumb character design. But if you can get past the filmation aspect of it, it's the stories are really good, and in some ways better because there are times when the original series the episodes would drag a little bit. Yeah. They were a little bit slow, and when you condense it down to half an hour, story's got to move, man. So yeah, no, it's it's good stuff. But even in that episode, Spock who is half human, could have made the irrational decision to save his pet yeah, as a yeah. child, and he doesn't. Captains and commanders, they have a responsibility, mm-hmm. okay? And I know that the Prime Directive is constantly getting broken and all that shit, but... Not her- that brazen, though. Because that's how the show fucking started, with her violating the Prime Directive. Well, we have to save this race. I can't just let this race, yes, but we'll not only be interfering with their culture and violating the Prime Directive, but... Our entire crew will get stranded 75 light years away from him. I've got to do it anyway. So here's the thing. I'm not going to hark on about the Prime Directive because captains and Starfleet are always breaking the Prime Directive. They're always doing it. And I think the reason that they always do it is because it's hard for us to look at those characters as relatable and people that we like if they don't break rules to make decisions of conscience. Mm -hmm. So I'm okay with that. But altering time to me is going too far. Something happened. And it happened for a reason. Yeah. And for you to go back and change that because you suddenly decide that there's a better way to do things, how do you know that that's the better way? Ideally, you could say, well, if you could go back and kill Hitler, would you? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Most people say they would. I don't know that I would want to fuck with time to that degree. Would we even be where we are right now if that happened? Well, what would have changed? Yeah. The butterfly effect, man. Exactly. When is it not acceptable to go back and stop something from happening because you think it's the right thing to do? If it's something that happened like five minutes ago, I'll give you the opportunity to go back five minutes to fix that. Okay. But like, wasn't it like 20 years had passed? I don't really know. I don't remember. All I remember is she made a decision and she went back and she drastically altered the timeline to save the lives of the command crew. While I've seen some people say that that's a courageous decision, I think it's bullshit. I don't want to call it a coward's way out. Although it is a coward's way out. You are going back and you are fixing your mistake because you feel bad that these people died. A commander, that's part of a commander's responsibility. I can't imagine Kirk going back in time to save Spock if Spock died. Fuck, he could have done it after Star Trek II. Yeah. There are ways to fuck with the time stream. You see it in later movies. Yeah. They go back to get the humpback whales. Yep. He could have changed time to do that. Yeah. He didn't because, well, I mean, as a commander, his responsibility is to something greater than just what how does that he really feels. change anyway? Bringing two humpback whales, whales and repopulating them. I mean, that doesn't have any lasting effect. But when you go back and change things that she changed you don't know the lives of people you know how many lives are you affecting i'm I'm not going to say that i can distinguish the difference between going back and grabbing two humpback whales from the past and bringing them forward into the future to save the world in a way that's sort of the same thing because 
what you're doing is instead of saving your crew from their own fuck-ups, you're saving all of humanity from its fuck-up of hunting the humpback whales to extinction. Right. But there is a lot of nuance to that discussion compared to that. decision is selfish. All I know, Janeway's decision is very selfish. And that's the thing that bugs me. Like, I guess at the core of it, I haven't thought about the humpback whale thing that much, but I don't feel that that decision is a selfish one. Not to mention... Kirk made it with other people. Right. It wasn't a unilateral decision. The crew he was just like, made. yeah, they we were all yeah. involved. Are we doing this? But yeah, Jane, he discusses it with Scotty and with Bones, tells him what he's planning on doing. And maybe Janeway did that. I don't know. But it just seems to me like, what's her argument? Yeah. Is her argument, these people went on to do great things? Well, how do you know their deaths won't inspire people to go on to do great things someday? Right. You know, okay, so you live There's 20 a Doctor years. Who episode about that. He, like, decided he was going to save this lady's life. And then she finds out that history said that I died. And he's like, yeah, but I changed that. And he's like, well, it's the history says my great-granddaughter went on to become, she was an astronaut. My great-granddaughter went on to become an astronaut because I died and she wanted to follow in my footsteps. Now, if I don't die, what's the effect going to be? You know, Who are you to decide that? He's like, well, I'm a time lord. And she's like, no. And she kills herself. It's such a complicated question. But at the end of the day, I find it more noble to live with your failures and change the way that you do things to be a better person. Or, you know what? Paint it in a negative light. Like, there are absolutely no negative consequences to the character doing that. The next time you see her after that, she's a fucking admiral. Starfleet was like, uh, we read your report. And um, good news, you're promoted. She fucking cashed in on how she changed things. That's just shitty to me. Now, here's the thing that could have totally turned me around on Janeway and made me admire her perhaps more than any other captain in Starfleet. For her to go back, make the change, and then walk away and be Mm -hmm. like, you know what? I did this because I needed to save lives. But I have to resign my commission because I violated everything. I I violated everything that a commander should stand for. A commander is a person who knows that when they order troops, those troops could die. You have to live with that possibility. And Janeway didn't. She went back and changed it. She sat back with her feet up on the desk with that cup of coffee. (laughs) I think that if they would have had her say, I'm resigning my commission. I never thought of that. That would be a totally better ending to that. I think that would be a great ending, and it would have completely... But instead, we get to watch that infuriating scene in Star Trek Nemesis. How'd you like a trip to Robulus, uh, Captain Picard? Captain Picard is answering to Janeway. Yeah. Go fuck yourselves, Paramount. Yeah. Well, that's Rick Berman. Well, Rick Berman. Go fuck yourself, Rick Berman. Yeah. What is it with Rick's? I just love saying that. <laughs> so anyway, that's my issue with Janeway. Yeah. That's, but Voyager has a lot more problems than oh, that. Oh, yeah. Totally. It's got Board a lot. kids. Amongst others. Yeah. It's got a lot of problems. Naomi Wildman, if you've watched the show, you know who that is and you know what a problem that is. There's, uh, there's a lot, yeah. So it's just, it's yet. You know who likes it is uh, a lot of, I hate to say it, but it's there's a lot of women girl power like who aren't really paying attention to the you know what's really wrong with the. by the way you know what you you notice that in all of my criticisms of voyager on janeway i did not bring up the fact that she was a woman because that doesn't matter to me no if a guy if the problem is with her as a captain if janeway would have been a guy and made those same decisions i still would have been just as bad yeah just as bad take responsibility for the mistakes you've made that have cost people their lives and if you're going to go back and change time 
at least take some personal accountability for it. You yeah. know, resign again, resign your commission. It would have totally turned me around on the character. It would have been like, you know what? That's a fucking cool thing that she did. Yeah. She did something that she knew was wrong because she wanted these people to live. And now she's going to pay a price for it. She's yeah. choosing to pay a price. I would have found that courageous yeah. and bold. Yeah. Not fucking doing it. I'm an admiral. I'm an admiral now. Yeah. You know, fuck you. And especially having to watch that scene where she's like giving Picard his orders of the day. It's like, uh, oh, yeah. dude. Why is Picard answering? I remember being like, in the theater, seeing Nemesis for the first time and just be like, what? In the theater? I mean, there's a lot more to be saying what about in that movie. It's just a pile of shit. But yeah, yeah that, that, that was one of the hard on is Tom Hardy. Yeah, I know. That's crazy. You look yeah. at that guy now. Yeah, he's made it, man. But yeah. that's like where he got to start. It's insane to see him like, yeah. oh, my God, what a terrible role that poor guy yeah. i mean he's fine in it you know there's nothing wrong with him yeah i don't think any of the it's acting just a dumb is bad character. in that movie it's just a bad badly written character yeah in a bad movie i'm a yeah i'm a clone of picard and the romulans threw me in the garbage and now i built this big spaceship out of spare parts from somewhere i guess yeah. i don't dumb boy was that movie dumb anyway they're all bad all the next gen movies were like, eh, you know, first contact's okay, so, but they're all contact, action garbage. First, you know, first contact was good on the first viewing. Yeah, but you watch that movie enough times, the cracks really start to. Oh sure, you really start to see the, the flaws, the chinks in the armor, and yeah. so forth. It's it's not really that great of a movie. I would argue that the motion picture is a better movie than most of the next gen movies. Mm-hmm. I would argue that all the all the original films. I would even argue that Star Trek Five is a better movie than a lot of them. You know, I, I wouldn't argue that with you. Know, you. Although, Star Trek Five is better. I just watched it like maybe six months ago. It's not a terrible movie. No, it's just that after four, they they rode the comedy tip a bit too hard yeah, yeah. with five. I know that people have criticisms like, oh, Nichelle Nichols dances nude and whatnot, and I don't want to see that. But I don't really know, man. Here's the thing I love about Five is that it's it's about the three characters. Yeah. It's about the Trinity. It's about Kirk, Spock, McCoy. It's about their friendship. Mm-hmm. You know, what did we just say? McCoy or, or Kirk? No, I don't want my mistakes to be changed. I want my pain. I yeah, need, I my, need pain. my pain. Yep. It makes me who I am. Yep. That tells you right there. No matter what happens, he would never go back in time to save his son. He would never go back in time to save Spock. He would never go back in time to fix mistakes that he made. He would never go back in time to stop himself from sending Khan to SETI Alpha 6? 5. 5. He would never stop... This is SETI Alpha 5! Yeah, he would never do that. His mistakes are what help him improve as a person. And... To think that you could ever reach a point where you just wouldn't make mistakes, well, then you wouldn't be human. Yeah. You know what else is good about Star Trek V? David Warner. Well, yeah, definitely. Before he became a Klingon. <laughs> In fact, I would say that of the Star Trek movies, 6 is probably my least favorite. See, I love 2, 3, and 4 because they're an arc. Yeah. I, I love them all. Yeah. My order is like 2, 4, 6. See, I, see to me, like I think 4 is a pretty weak Star Trek film. But it's so entertaining to watch, I just don't care. Yeah, two, four, six, and then three and five. It's the old adage, the even ones. The even ones are the good, ones the odd ones yeah, suck, yeah. 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 But um, I think Undiscovered Country is a decent film. I just think maybe the original cast had gotten too long in the tooth at that point. Hmm. I don't know, but I, it's okay, yeah. you know. I do like when McCoy rolls over and he looks at Kirk and he's like, what is it with you? <laughs> Still I, think we're finished? More than ever. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh anyway. Yeah, you know, my order of Captain... You know, order of captains probably be the same as yours. 
What do you say, Kurt Picard? You would put Picard ahead of Cisco? Yeah, probably. Just okay. because, you know, he's. I've seen all of Next Gen, and I, I have other reasons besides Patrick Stewart why I think Picard is a good captain. There's yeah, I can't really say that Cisco's a better captain than Picard because I haven't watched all of Deep Space Nine. Yeah. I mean, what there are big, big differences between Picard and Cisco, certainly, but Picard just, I think, than Cisco does. He's a little bit more by the book than Cisco, but I just... Well, that's uh, one of the arguments that I've always heard about p- why people like Picard. Why people say that Picard over Kirk. And if you think Picard over Kirk, screw your head on straight. Okay? And here's the reason why. Well, Picard's more like what a captain in Starfleet would really be like. Well, that doesn't fucking matter. It's not important. What's important is how good is the character and how good is the captain. If you like Picard because you think he makes better decisions as a captain, that's fine. And I disagree with you. Yeah. But if you say, well, Picard is more... I like Picard because he's more like what a captain of a starship like that would be. Well, suck it. Because who cares about that? That's not even important. I think a lot of people, too, though, they don't take the series into consideration. Like, I've seen every episode of the original series many times. And, you know, I take that and the movies into consideration. There are a lot of reasons why he's just the best captain. I mean, I can't cite them all here. But you have to take everything into account. You can't just be like, oh, well, since he's so awesome in the movies. No, it's like you have to take the series into account. A lot of people just have seen the Kirk movies and that's what they base it on. But there's more to him than what he was in the movies. Unfortunately, culture has stigmatized the original series to some degree. If you like the original series, it's one of the classic telltale signs that you're this sort of socially irredeemable nerd. (laughs) Think about it. If you ever watched an episode of the big bang theory where star Trek is referenced, they're always talking about the next generation. You know, except for of course, um, what's his name's fixation on Leonard Nimoy. Oh, Sheldon. Sheldon's fixation on Leonard Nimoy. Yeah, yeah. I just feel like the original show is unfairly stigmatized. Like even to this day, here we are in 2016 and we have the ability to look at that original show with a much more wise and understanding lens. Yeah. And we still choose to define it the same way that we were defining it 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's not fair to that show. Yeah. That show is more daring and more courageous and took more chances than The Next Generation ever did. Yeah. The Next Generation played it really safe. And totally. I'm not shitting on Next Gen. Next Gen to me felt like, well, how do we make a Star Trek show that people won't look at in the same way as the original series? We have to have characters that make sense. Mm-hmm. Whereas like, I prefer characters that are dynamic and stand out and are interesting that's not carte blanche for bad writing. Because right. you know me, I can't tolerate bad writing. But I don't think the original series had bad writing. No. It had some bad ideas. <laughs> but I guarantee you this. Next generation, percentage-wise, I feel it had more bad ideas than the original series. Yeah. And that's, again, that's not knocking next gen. People grew up with next gen. They like next gen. That's fine. But I kind of look at next gen the way I look at Lord of the Rings. It's not as good as you remember it. Mm-hmm. Whereas the original series is the same as what it was. We just choose to view it in a different, maybe unfair lens. Well, you just want to talk about a variety of crew, a mishmash of characters that just don't belong there. That's Deep Space Nine. They're all over the place, man. Oh, there's a lot going on there. I know it's difficult. We're all older and there's there's a lot going on, but everybody, and I'm not just talking to you, I'm talking to everybody, make time. Watch uh, Deep Space Nine, man. It's just such a damn good show and some damn good acting i mean we're talking about the the end of the what i consider the end of the golden age before 2000 the 90s that was the last like golden age of television to me i think you know i think there were a lot of good shows and then 2000 and beyond is like 
now in my mind. You know, that's everything that came after. DS9 ended in uh, 99. It was like just the tail end of the golden age. Right when CGI first started to come out and mm-hmm. be on TV and those kind of effects were being used before it got all watered down. And, you know, it was just really good characters, good stories. And it was about war and a lot of tough decisions. Give me a lot of darkness, but also a good balance of that Star Trek humor, mm-hmm. that lightness that Star Trek always had. It was never like The Walking Dead or Battlestar Galactica. You know, it wasn't that bleak ever. It was always like, we're at war, but that's going on in the background. Here's what we're doing day to day here on the station. And uh, My thoughts on TV in the current day is that I can't really watch network television anymore. Mm. I don't have the capacity to do it. And I think the reason for that is just because I've seen so many shows like Spartacus and Black Sails and <laughs> Game of Thrones now that I'm watching this television or even The Sopranos, which I didn't watch The Sopranos, but I should have. Or I want to watch Breaking Bad, too. I hear a lot of good things mm-hmm, about that. Mm-hmm. Once but you see all these types of shows, you're like kind of spoiled on it. And it's I can't hard to go, go back. back. And the reason why is because it's like I'm watching Spartacus and it's like the most exaggerated, decadent fictionalized, stylized version of Rome I've ever seen anywhere. I know it's not historically accurate. But the thing is, what the show is trying to do is the show is trying to give you a very vivid image of the opulence and exorbitance of Rome. And Mm -hmm. if you were a Roman citizen, what that was like, how much power you had, and how lascivious and how hedonistic you could be. And that was just part of society. It's a very overstated version of what really happened. The thing that I really like about it is that there were no limits. Mm-hmm. If they wanted to have a scene where like the owner of this this Roman citizen who's the owner of this house had a party and he had fucking lesbians making out for people to just watch and enjoy, they just put the two they women there and yeah. show it. There's a scene in Game of Thrones where like an important character gets his hand chopped off. And it's like on a network show they would have found some way to save the dude so his hand didn't get chopped off. But on Game of Thrones, it's like, boom, he loses the hand. Now the character has to live with the consequences of not having a hand. And he's a very he was a very skilled sword fighter. Spartacus is a very exploitative show in the sense that it's all about the sex and violence. But it doesn't pretend to be about anything else other than the sex and violence. Now, there is a very intricate political drama going on, and there are a lot of relationship dynamics in the show. In fact, I would say it's almost like an R-rated Shakespearean thing. It's a very relatable story. You can see the politics and the way that it's affecting everyone's lives. It doesn't pretend to be art. And in doing so, in my opinion, it is a form of art. It's a form of violent, hyper-stylized art. It's just kind of like RoboCop. Right. Well, no, it's a, it's, I know you're not saying that ironically either. It I mean is. That. RoboCop is a satire yeah. and it's a satire in such a way that it just elevates it to where it's art yeah. because it's not trying to be art. It's just trying to tell its story. It knows what it is and yeah. uh, it, doesn't it, take itself too seriously. It, and, and in doing so, it achieves a higher state, yep. in my opinion. Mm. But I can't go back and watch network TV now because if I It'd do... It'd be tough for you to like watch a CW show and be well, like, well, I can't take Melissa this seriously. Melissa tried to turn me on to Grimm, which is, I think, channel... It's like ABC. Yeah, yeah. And I couldn't watch it. And she's like, she's like, why not? It's a good show. I'm like, it's okay show. It's like, but... I don't know. It just it can't go where it wants to go. Yeah, right, right. You know, it can't go where it should go. This is a world where violent monsters live. You know, like it should be more violent. If a pack of werewolves hunts down a girl, I want to see the blood. I don't necessarily need to see her being ripped to pieces, but I want to see the blood. 
I want to know the violence. And I understand that Grimm can't really go there. But that's kind of why I can't that's watch That's the difference, it. yeah. You know? The shows I watch that I put in that category are like Daredevil and Jessica Jones. Yeah. Like they're in that elevated category. You might have the ability to go back and watch less dangerous fair though i don't know that i have it in me Mm -hmm. i don't know that i can go back and watch a show that doesn't have to show those things i don't need to see sex and violence and nudity but if a show wants to go there i want to know that the only reason they choose not to go there is for a narrative or storytelling reason not anything to do with limits set on it by the broadcasting network or you know sponsors or affiliates and shit like that yeah i mean although i'm calling the 90s the golden age for me i can certainly recognize that modern tv has its advantages like back when deep space nine was on you knew that it's next generation was on seven seasons deep space nine was on seven seasons you know that these characters are all contracted and you know nobody's gonna die Mm -hmm. you know you don't have that anymore now anybody can just croak at any time, yeah. you know, they don't like contract people anymore. And, and a lot of these shows, it's just like, oh, the character might die. Walking Dead has that. Yeah. I do think that shows need to be careful about that. On Game of Thrones right now, the big question for the past year is whether or not a certain character is dead because okay. he gets killed in the very last episode of the last season. And he's a really important character. Right. And his story is probably has more unanswered questions to it than any other character, his lineage, who his parents are. He's my favorite character in the books, but the books haven't gone beyond this point. The last thing that happens in the books is the character has been stabbed. He's been betrayed and he's bleeding out and he's fading and losing consciousness. So in the books, like that's the last thing that happens. And in the TV show, it's the last thing that you see. Last thing so you the see. books, the TV's caught up with the books? TV's caught up with so the books. So what do books. they do now? Well, they're going beyond. The showrunners have talked to George R. R. Martin, and they have a very general idea of where Martin is going with it because they kind of know. Okay. But the way in which they're going to get there is going to be very different. So I think at this point the show is going to wildly deviate from oh. the source material because there is no new book published because George R. Is R. Is that Martin, bad, you think? Is it? Uh, yeah. Because huh. I think that the strength of the show is hasn't been its storytelling necessarily, but in the because way- whenever Dragon Ball would get past the manga, we'd get an episode where Goku and Piccolo learn how to drive. So maybe they could yeah, just put maybe, in some filler. Maybe it'll be an episode where uh, where the direwolves learn how to drive, or they get potty trained or something. <laughs> but uh, uh, my big question is: um, Has winter come yet? Uh, no, it no. has not. Winter still has not still, come. I say that as I'm wearing my House Stark hoodie <laughs> right now. Now on the show, you see, they need to be careful with that because it gets to a point where you're killing characters on the show. And the mistake with Game of Thrones by, by audience has always been like anybody can die. Mm-hmm. Well, anybody can die, but there are specific reasons for that. When you kill a character just to shock people, yeah, that's bad. Like when you're killing a character just to shock people and then you're filling in all the narrative holes afterwards to sort of make it mean something. It's like, I don't know if Jon Snow's dead. I just don't know. Yeah. Actually, I do know that the character is dead, but resurrection is a thing in the show. Okay. And they're hinting that he has this grander destiny and he's in the presence of a person that could, with the right power resurrect him mm-hmm. so that's a possibility that could happen but hbo has been coy with it all year they've okay. been like oh we don't know yeah. you know we all we can tell you is john snow's dead yeah, yeah but they didn't say whether or not he's not coming back the actor has been continually insisting all year long i'm not coming back to the show i'm not coming back to the show i'm dead and there are my friends have come up to me and said well you know kit harrington's saying he's not coming back and i'm like you idiot right if he spoils probably the biggest cliffhanger in the history of television because so many people are talking about it yeah if he spoils that, 
he ruins all of the tension. Yeah. And also probably gets fined. And think about this. If he tells everyone, I'm not coming back, and that turns out to be the truth, how many people are going to fucking walk away? Yeah. Like if HBO comes out and says, he's right. We just, we, the character's dead. He's not coming back. Yeah. How many people just walk away from the show then? They can't do that. You know? Why don't they do what? So uh, Kit, Herring, Kit Harrington saying, I'm not coming back. It's a lie. Yeah, yeah. Because he's not going to be allowed to say the truth. You got to keep people guessing. You got to keep people anticipating. If you end the show on a cliffhanger, you can't spoil the cliffhanger in media press releases and interviews and shit in the year leading up to it. You yeah. can't do that. Well, what the fans of Game of Thrones ought to do is uh, take a letter from the Walking Dead fans and start a petition demanding that HBO tell them whether he's dead or not, just like they did on Walking Dead oh, to tell right. who, you know. Well, but of course, I'm sure AMC is like, stick it in your ass. We're not saying anything. No, yeah. But, yeah. you know, but that's but, what you do when you're a fan of a show, you know, you start a petition. Right. But my point about killing characters is they need to be careful with that. Yeah. Because every character that died in Game of Thrones is a factor in building to something bigger. Whereas I feel that every character that they kill in The Walking Dead, it just seems to me it's like we're killing this character because. It's a season finale. It's a season finale, or it's a season opener. Yeah. Or we're doing it because. We well, want... yeah. Now, yeah. Now, now we do it as a season opener. Yeah. That's we're, the new way. We're killing characters because we want to show you how it affects everybody else. Yeah. Like Tyree's dying in The Walking Dead. Spoiler. Yeah, sorry. But that happened. That's like, old. Yeah. yeah, that's old. Tyree's dying in The Walking Dead. It's like I don't really understand the point of it. He was never really an important character in the show anyway. Well, in the comic, yeah. he was a very important it's character. It's not a spoiler because he's a black guy. You knew he was going to yeah, die. Yeah, that's true. A black male on The Walking Dead is not safe. Yeah. So In The Walking Dead, like I'm watching them killing characters, and I don't understand how it's affecting the overall arc. Yeah, Whereas right. Rob Stark getting killed in Game of Thrones, he was leading the revolt against the Lannisters. He was coming to get revenge for his dad. He actually had the North unified against King's Landing. They kill the character that entire effort falls apart and he dies because of mistakes that he made that law of unintended consequences. He broke a promise and the person he broke the promise to got pissed off and petty made a deal with the other side. And that's why Rob Stark got killed. Mm. There is a larger picture going into the death of these characters and characters that just happen to be there at this incident. It's called the red wedding. I'm I'm familiar with it. Every other character that was important that was there, they died. That's an unintended consequence of, Rob's actions. So like when Catelyn got killed, that's because she happened to be a Stark. She was Rob's mother and Rob was the target. Mm. So you're going to kill Rob. You got to kill Catelyn. She happened to be there. That's why she's dead. You don't have to watch the show to, you know, the internet exploded when that happened. So, I mean, I, I don't know anything about the show, but I know what that, you know, I knew about that. So they shows have to be careful with killing characters. And I feel now that game of Thrones, for example, is going into this uncharted territory. I really think leaving John dead would be a big mistake, not just because I like the character, because I don't really like the TV show version of the character as much as I like the book version of the Mm, character, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but I do like the TV show version of the character. But I think that they need to be careful. They can't kill the character. I think that there are certain characters that if you kill them, you you risk damaging the narrative of the show to a point where it's just irrecoverable. You can't trust a show to recover from every character. that Like Dinklage, right? He's like... Yeah, well, if they kill Peter Dinklage then there will be outrage. Yeah. But I think that the character is overplayed on the TV show. Mm. But anyway. The whole point is Janeway sucks. The whole point is Janeway sucks. And we were talking about why TV has evolved to this point. But to get, to get it back on topic, that's why I don't like 
know, I don't like Janeway because she doesn't choose to face the consequences of her actions, not even on a personal level. And if she did, they don't show it. And when you're making them a big monumental decision like that, you have to show it. It's way too big of a choice. None of us would just blindly change time to make ourselves feel better. We would all think about the consequences. If I was the lead character in a story and I had that option, I would want for those things to be shown, like my contemplation of that. Yeah. You know, if I just change, make the changes and, oh, you know, off screen I thought about it for a few years and I learned to live with it. No, this is a big deal. Yeah, right. Anyway, enough about that. Deep Space Nine. You should watch it. Yeah, I should watch it. (laughs) Uh, See, here's the thing about Deep Space Nine, though. It's difficult because this is back when we were doing 26 episodes and at seven seasons. I mean, that's a lot of hours. And the first two seasons, not that good. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very difficult. First two seasons of DS9 is pretty much on par with Voyager. And the interesting thing is that about two years after Deep Space Nine started, guess what happened? Voyager started, so yeah. Rick Berman, so Rick Berman went over it. there. Story got awesome. Everything worked out. I'll definitely have to check it out. Maybe yeah. we'll start doing our TV show exchange again at some point. Oh, yeah, man. We haven't done that in a long time. Yeah, and you, you praise DS9 like nothing I've ever seen. Even beyond Dragon Ball, I've seen you. Yeah. DS9. Didn't Speaking just, of Dragon Ball. Yeah, didn't you want to say something about didn't Dragon we, Ball? Didn't uh, we just get, yeah, we just got done watching the last few episodes of Dragon Ball Super. Yeah, and we you, both thought they were pretty awesome. You showed me digested versions of it. Like, you kind of went to the important stuff. We did watch the whole last episode. Yeah. Latest, I should say, because mm-hmm. it's not done yet. Yeah. But, yeah, and um, I, I have to admit that even though I think the show still has a lot of the same <laughs> frustrating yeah. storytelling elements that it's always had, that's Dragon Ball. And yeah, yeah. It's living up to its... Uh... The fact that it's able to surprise me to some degree yeah. is a good thing. Yeah. But in other ways, it doesn't surprise me. Right. Like, you know, like Piccolo <laughs> not being allowed to fight and show his stuff. And yeah. It's like, okay, you know, why, why bring the character I into know. it anyway? So... What did you want to say about Dragon Ball? That was it. The, oh. It's just uh, Dragon Ball Super. If you know anything about Dragon Ball or if you've ever seen it, you should definitely be checking out Super. It's uh, it's really good. These are some of my favorite arcs that are going on right now. I mean, mm-hmm. you think back to everything, the Frieza and Cell, Androids, and Majin Buu, and this is like kind of almost topping it, I think. It's really think good stuff. What's interesting about it, too, is that Toriyama is not... I don't know how much involvement he has. He's like He's, like he's writing creative. it. He's writing it. Okay. He writes it. See, yeah. see, I think, and he says he loves it. He's like, I love it because there were times when I was writing the the manga that I would be like, uh, you know, I don't feel like drawing all that, yeah. so I'm going to turn it into this. Whereas now he can, his imagination runs wild, right. and then I let the younger people animate it all, and it's, I love it, it. It's interesting because it's what I was going to say. I wonder if the manga didn't limit him. Because it took so much more creative energy to visualize that in a printed form. Whereas now he can just write it and he can leave it up to other people to visualize it. And, of course, because they're using all of his art direction, it's going to look like something that he drew because he did originally draw it. I think that the show has actually been a bit smarter about some of its stuff than Mm -hmm. I ever expected it to be. I think there's a really cool fight between Vegeta and what's the Saiyan from Universe 6? Kaba. Cabbage. Because all the Saiyans have vegetable names. Vegetable names. It's a really cool fight. It's got a lot of interesting subtext, yeah. and it shows you a lot about Vegeta's character that I think is just really cool. I don't want to spoil it or right. talk about it that yeah. much, but I think there's a really subversive element to it that just not only is it really smartly written, mm. if you understand the character of Vegeta, the entire fight makes sense to you. Yeah. Like everything, every decision he makes, everything he says has a purpose and a meaning, and it's been a long time 
since I've watched an action-based anime that did that. Yeah. That's like, okay, this is kind of cool. This is it's rising above its normal levels of creativity. Yeah. It's really doing something very fascinating. It's it's action and it's character building and it's kind of got an epiphany element to it. All yeah. at the same and we've time. always complained like, you know, drag on ball, like a lot of filler and a lot of, you know, yeah, this does not slow. waste this, this time. Yeah. A tiny little bit. I think that Dragon Ball is now a show where you expect there to be the screaming and powering up, yeah. but it's maybe 30 seconds to a minute. Or two minutes, maybe at the instead most. of a whole episode. Instead of a whole episode, <laughs> where the planet's going to blow up in five minutes yeah. for like twenty. For episodes. twenty, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. I mean, as cool as the fight between Goku and Frieza was, it reads a lot better than it plays. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we had fun. It was, uh, it's pretty good. If you like Dragon Ball, or if you follow Dragon Ball up through Dragon Ball Z, it takes place right after the end of um, the Majin Buu saga. So, like before. There was like those last three episodes or so of Dragon Ball Z. Where Goku fights the reincarnated Boo. Yeah, there was like a 10-year time skip. It's before all that. And it's getting very close to like walking the line of overriding that last chapter, just telling it to go screw itself. I mean, it's already totally told Dragon Ball GT to go fuck itself. Dragon Ball GT is completely out the window now. Yeah, it's not canon Totally not canon anymore. There was no Dragon Ball Z manga. It was Mm -hmm. just Dragon Ball. When Toriyama finished Dragon Ball, he had no idea he was going to come back to it in a canonical way. Yeah. Like, he had no idea, you know? So, actually, Dragon Ball GT, I think, for a while was canon, and that took place afterwards. Yeah, but he didn't have anything to do with that. And That's true. When you compare, now having watched as many, 40 episodes into Dragon Ball Super, and having watched all the episodes of Dragon Ball GT, and comparing the two, it's, like, so much more obvious and clear to me now that, Toriyama did not write or have anything to do with GT. You almost think that maybe they should have just let it end for a little while. Yeah. But Bondi, but money, you know, money, you got to keep making those animes so you can make new toys. That's and how really... many times did they try to convince Toriyama to keep going? He wanted to end a Freezer saga. Huh? They're like, make, no, do more. All right, here's Cell. Thank, well, He's thank, like, I'm done. All right, no, do one more. All right, here's Majin Buu. Yeah. Well, thank goodness they did encourage him to go beyond Frieza because we ended up getting Cell, which is still overall my favorite saga. Yeah, yeah. I haven't watched the Super stuff, but Cell to me is my favorite because it's the summation of everything Gohan went through. Yeah. I felt incredibly validated watching Cell because they spent so much time focusing on Gohan's potential, yeah. and it finally was realized. And that's why I really like Cell so much is because he did the thing that none of the other characters could do. They promised all along, you're going to be stronger than all of us. It yeah. finally happened. It finally came up. Gohan finally ascended to the throne. And I felt like there was a payoff to it. Yeah. Of course, then they went Until and fucked that all Majibu up. Until Saga. Yeah. And they said, forget it, Gohan. Right. You're out of here. It's pretty neat. And I know there's people listening who like don't know Dragon Ball, but uh, you know, too bad. Get a podcast. Get your own podcast. Right. You want to talk about your shit. We talk about our shit. Yeah, exactly. You wanted to talk about uh, something, didn't uh, you? Well, I wanted to bring up what I've been playing lately. Yeah, and sure. What, what have you been playing? You still doing, uh, Twilight. Still, still playing, playing Twilight, Twilight Princess. Yeah, yeah. How far along are you into that? Um, I am in the Temple of Time right now. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I yeah, think you... uh, that's like the second of th- three or four. I don't remember. I'm almost to the end. Very close. Yeah, I, 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 haven't, I haven't entered the Twilight Realm time. yet. Have you used the Amiibo to access the extra content? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and in fact, you can save and load with it too. So it's like super convenient. You just load up the game, touch the Amiibo, and you're playing. 
Oh, that's your cool. save. Yeah, without going through it through any of the menu or anything. Nice. So it saves like ten seconds, but it's still like a cool. You know, I just have it off to the side. Well, that's pretty neat. Well, it actually takes more time to do it that way because first I have to locate the amiibo that my kid has ran off with. <laughs> yeah. Then once I locate it, then I can touch it to the thing. I could have just gone through the menu in this amount mm-hmm. of time. But yeah, that's uh, just Twilight Princess right now. And um, a little dabbling a little bit with um, Shovel Knight, the Plague Knight expansion. Right. I've been doing that now. Wait, is that a new one? Or is that well, the second one? Is that the first expan- well, that's the, expansion? Whatever right? expansion there, right. there is, well, yeah. I believe you the can original, play as Plague Knight. Yeah, I be- yeah I, that's pretty cool. I believe the original build of the game, you actually had to unlock the content. Like yeah. When they released the expansion, like you had to do something to access it. But now, with all the new- I think you do still have to finish the game once. Yeah, with all the new builds, though, they make it easier. Or yeah. something. Like There's another way to do it. Yeah. So, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not that familiar with Shovel Knight. I played through some of it, but I haven't finished it. I know I need to. I finished but. it twice and then uh, finished the first run through and then New Game Plus, And then now I'm doing uh, Play. Have Knight. you played with the Amiibo content? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Pre- I played two player with my kid. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Cool. It was really cool. Cool. Um, it's, I mean, it's cool to do that. It's not as cool to kind of have to carry a three year old through the game, but right. it's still a lot of fun that we can both. Sit down and play. Who's the other character? Like, if you play two players, just in a green shovel knight. Okay, yeah, all right. Same. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, what I've been playing lately is I've been playing Dark Souls three. Okay. Now I don't know you... anything about it. Okay, so I'll take a moment to explain what Dark Souls is about. Dark Souls. Which it, system? Uh, this is on PlayStation four, but Dark Souls originally debuted on the PlayStation three. Okay. So what Dark Souls is is it's a dark fantasy action rpg okay it's very heavy on uh non-linear progression okay so kind of like metroid mm-hmm. but unlike metroid where there are certain areas you can't access until you get a particular weapon in this game as long as you can get there if you're good enough you can access those areas you know if you find the right key items you can get into those areas sure. but it's non-linear there's no set path you need to follow okay and you could do a playthrough and miss bosses you could skip past areas that's neat the hallmark of the game is that it's punishingly difficult oh. so the way that it works is i'm too old for that crap uh well let me explain what what the games are really about okay so Every game in the Dark Souls series, and I believe Demon Souls is connected to it. The first one that came out was Demon Souls. Who makes it? Well, From Software are the developers. Okay. And Atlas published Demon Souls. Mm-hmm. Then Bandai Namco published Dark Souls 1, 2, and 3. Oh. And Sony published another game by the FromSoft people <laughs> called Bloodborne that is not connected to Dark Souls but is the same type of gameplay, only focusing on speed and offense, whereas the Dark Souls games are they are more about tactical gameplay, okay. methodical, and patience. Because what you do is you'll go through an area, you explore an area, and you'll encounter an enemy. It's not a rushdown. You have to be patient. You have to watch how these enemies are going to attack, and you have to exploit their weaknesses. There are many different character builds. You can play like a knight. You can play a barbarian or a sorcerer. Really, there's no limit to Do you to pick what, at the beginning, or do you... You pick what your starting build is going to be, but the thing is, whenever you kill enemies, you get souls, which are kind of like experience points that you can spend, and you can level up whatever attributes you want to level up. So you can start as one type and then transition right. into another. Oh, that's right. neat. Right. So if you want to be like a knight that wields spells... You just have to upgrade the appropriate stats so that you can equip spells and then your spells aren't shitty. Hmm. You know, so but the thing is if you do that then your 
strongest assets are not going to be as powerful as they need to be when you progress later in the game. Okay. So there's a lot of grinding. There could be a lot of grinding. Mm-hmm. It depends on how powerful you want to make your character. So what the games are about is the Dark Souls games show a world that is in a constant state of decline and rebirth and decline and rebirth. There's a flame that is going out in the world. Okay. And in the beginning of this world, like dragons ruled everything. And then fire came into it. And with fire, there were these beings that became empowered by the fire and they gained strength from it enough strength to take on the dragons. And with the aid of a, a, a dragon that was a traitor named Seath the Scaleless. Okay. He's a dragon without scales. So he's kind of like, you know, he's kind of like the Loki of dragons, essentially. <laughs> so, like, with Seath betrayed the dragons, and with Seath's help, these inheritors of this power were able to take down the dragons. Hmm. And then that started a, an age of prosperity for them. Well, the fire is burning out. Okay. Okay. And their power is fading, and the world is in decline. So it's kind of like a post-apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic world <laughs> where, like, everything is all ruins, and there are bandits living in the fringes of society, and the world is overrun with monsters, and the flame is dying out, and the lords, they want someone to rekindle the flame, to restart the cycle. Okay. Okay. In the first game, you had your choice to rekindle the flame and restart the cycle, which is going to be entropy all over again. Yeah, it'll usher in a new age, but eventually the fire is going to die out again. Then the new lords, whoever become the new lords, because the fire is rekindled, Mm -hmm. so the fire will imbue into new people who will become the new lords. They'll be able to continue to maintain control, and it's just kind of this unending cycle. Or you can choose to let it all come to an end. And then the Age of Darkness, which is the Age of Man, will come about and mm. all this shit will die out. The irony is that it's inevitable. It's, it's going to start up and it's going to die out. It's going to start up and it's going to die out. Now, when you play these games, it's not like your standard RPG where like you go into towns and they're like it's bustling with people and there are airships. And no, you find these dilapidated old settlements or old villages and there might be one or two people there. And it's this really somber sort of empty atmosphere. You'll meet these two people. And they'll be like broken people. You know, they're like, ah, it's hopeless. Why are, why are you continuing to fight? You know, we can't do anything about this. As you meet more people throughout the world, you can interact with them and initiate a series of different storylines. And a lot of these NPCs will end up going back to your hub town. And mm. then they become merchants and vendors. And, you know, they become people that you can. So I was just about to say, like, what makes it exciting if every town you go to has like two people in it and it's all well, dilapidated nothing there's like only that. one town okay you have a central hub okay the other towns don't aren't really towns they're, they're not really like they're just ruins ruins okay with a dude hanging out who yeah, may you, or may not help you yeah exactly and that's the interesting thing too is, is like if you choose to free somebody from prison they may go back to your town and kill some people yeah or they may help you later mm. there are other quests too um, they're not all good people exactly and you don't know yeah but the they're not hu- all like, thank you. Right, exactly. <laughs> you just, you don't know. Because the, the way they're answering is very vague. And yeah. You're not really certain. And the thing is, the sense of paranoia that the game builds through that, it serves the entropy of that world very well. Thank you for saving me. I won't murder everyone in your village, I promise. Exactly. So the thing that's really neat about the games is that 
every game, there's thousands of years that pass between the games. Oh. So okay. it's not like when you So come, they're not connected in that regard. It's not like in the second game it's like, oh I remember what the guy did in the first game. Yeah. No, that's it's like, like Fantasy Star is like that. There's like a thousand years like between subsequent right. games. Yeah. But you come right back and it's the same situation. Yeah. Thousands of years have passed and same the world, shit. It, it's like the inevitability of it. Just yeah. the let theme it, of rebirth and entropy. Or just let it die. Yeah. In the second game you don't have the choice. There's one ending. And then in the third game, I don't know because I haven't finished it yet. <laughs> the games are, again, they're nonlinear and they're very difficult. The way, what makes it so difficult? The monsters hit really hard yeah. and there are endless pits in the game and you can get knocked. See, you have a stamina gauge and the stamina gauge is what dictates how many times you can attack before you have to let it recover. Okay. So like you'll swing three times and there might be like a three or four second delay while that stamina gauge fills up. Every time, if you have a shield... Whenever you block, that stamina gauge depletes. So enemies that can attack successively and hit really hard, they can deplete your stamina and then open you up to attacks. (laughs) There are fast enemies that can get behind you and backstab you if you're not fighting smart. If you're not paying attention to your environment, you can walk right off an edge and die. (laughs) There are wicked traps that, you know, like boulder traps and spike traps and pit traps that you have to be careful for. There are all kinds of persistent damage effects. Like you can get poisoned, you can get cursed. There's, again, the difficulty is punishing. And the way that it works is like when you die, you go back to the last bonfire that you interacted with. And now the bonfires are places where you go to recover your hit points. That's bonfires can be in the hub or out in the woods. Like if you're traveling for like the last place you were, it's the closest thing to a save point essentially, but everything is saving in real time. You can't like save, have a save state and then go back to that save state. If you die, it saves. So you're stuck with whatever you get. You can save it to a USB drive in case you want to preserve that save state, but that kind of goes against the grain of the game. Yeah. Yeah. The game is meant to be punishing like that because the thing is, some of the areas are so challenging. You never know where enemies are going to drop down or how these enemies are going to fight. Every time you fight a new enemy, you're like, holy shit. What, how, why is he so tall? What is that weapon he's using? Oh, my God, he's so fast. Like, There's tension every step of the way. Yeah. And if you can deal with that, the games are very exciting and also very rewarding when you finally figure out how to navigate a zone without dying to cheap traps yeah. or backstabbing. It's the boss fights especially – some of the boss fights are very difficult because they can be very relentless in their attacks. Yeah. And you try to get behind them, and then they have these moves where they turn around and swat you anyway. Or they have these moves where they quickly grab you. Any good boss fight is all pattern recognition. Yeah. But you have to be good enough to understand the pattern. And the thing is, some of these boss fights are very punishingly difficult. You could die like 30 times to this boss, but that one time when you finally <laughs> figure it out and yep. you win, it's really satisfying. Oh, sure. And also, if, if you, not, you can just uh, put in your USB stick and take the Janeway way out. Oh, sure. Just that, go back in time and, uh, you know, change maybe things. Maybe my character can be an admiral, too. <laughs> See, when you kill something, you get souls. You absorb their souls. Right, right. And then you take those back to the, to the hub and you talk to the correct NPC. And then you choose to level up. When you level up, you're leveling up one attribute. There's like strength and vitality and endurance. And each one does a different thing. Yeah. Each one enhances you in a different way. And every time you, you level up, every successive level costs more of these souls. Mm-hmm. So you have to grind more and more and more to get up higher in levels. A lot of grinding like hours. It depends on how powerful you want your character to be. You could progress through the game based on skill alone. It okay. is po- I've, I've watched so videos. So you can just go th- walk through if you want to. But if you really want good stuff, it's a good idea to spend maybe an hour or two 
fighting monsters? Is that right. what you? Well, more. Yeah, it depends. Again, you. I've seen people that are good enough to beat like the last boss of the game with very minimal build up. Okay, but that's all skill. That's yeah. like being that good. Like a lot of people, they don't have that. I'm not that good. There's no margin for error when you're playing the beginning build character and you've progressed all through the game all the way to the end. So you do it to kind of protect yourself and allow yourself to make some mistakes. Right. When you get killed, any souls that you had on you, they remain at the point where you died. Oh. So you have to go back. Oh, and every time you respawn, every enemy in the area responds as well. So, so you've got to get through the enemies to get to the souls of the enemies you already beat. Exactly. Okay. And if you That's die rough. while trying to do that, those souls are gone forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. And you get and whatever souls you had when you died are now what you have to go back and retrieve. So it's really punishing yeah. and it's very difficult, but it's really rewarding. The thing that I really like about the game is the desolate quality of the world. Like every item that you acquire, you can read a description of it. And it tells you a little bit about the world. Whenever you're interacting with your menu, like you look at this particular sword yeah. and you read about the sword, it'll give you like a little snippet of information about that world. And then when you've read enough of it, the pieces start to go together. Yeah. And you're like, oh, this sword once belonged to this person who went over here and died because of this. But you don't get the whole story in one thing. You have to invest yourself in the lore. Or when you talk to certain NPCs, or when you talk to certain creatures that you can enter into pacts with, interacting with them reveals little chunks of the story. It's an interesting visual way of telling the story without telling the story. I right. like that. It's not like the Square Enix method where you go somewhere and then there's this massive cutscene that explains everything. Yeah. You can choose to get into the lore of the world, and it's a really fascinating lore. Did you ever play the game Portal? Yeah. That's kind of the the same thing, where you learn the story through the visuals that you're seeing. Like, you find those hidden rooms where there was that guy before you going through it, and you see, yes. like, all the little remnants of all the things that he was doing before. And, like, there's no dialogue in the game whatsoever. That's how you're getting the story through just reading these little bits of what came yep. before you. That's That reminds me of that. Yeah, and, and even Resident Evil, like if you ignored all of the files that you can find, you still know the story because there's scenes where the characters interact. Yeah. With a game like Dark Souls or Portal, you'd have no idea what's going on. Right. <laughs> it could even be something as simple as you're reading a description about a spear. And like in the description of the spear, I'm d this is not something in the game. I'm just giving an example. Yeah, yeah. This was once the legendary spear of such and such who lost it spear fishing or whatever. So then later on, you're wandering through this area and you find this statue of this guy and he doesn't have his spear. It's like it's an empty hand where there should be a spear. Yeah. Like, oh, this statue is a physical representation of the myth that this spear yeah. is about. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Sometimes it's just based solely on what you're looking at. That's cool. Those aspects of it are really neat. I don't know that it's the kind of game for you because there's a lot of grinding. Uh, and also, there's like different weapons and armor have different elements. You can talk to blacksmiths and you can infuse the weapons with different qualities. Yeah. Some armor is more resistant against certain types of damage than other armor. There's a lot of mixing and matching. There's a forced PvP element. Although in Dark Souls 3, you have the option to choose to play offline. Okay. Like, the Force PvP is, okay, so you have two states in Dark Souls. You have, you're alive or you're hollowed. Hollowed is undead. You're okay. an undead anyway. Yeah, yeah. But if you're, if, you're, if you're not in a hollowed state, that means you're, you know, you're not emaciated. You're not zombified. 
you're physically stronger. You have more hit points in that state. When you die, you become hollowed, and there are key items that you can use to unhollow yourself. Okay. But while you're unhollowed, you are open to invasion by other players. Okay. And you can enter into packs to summon NPCs to help you. Certain packs will summon other player characters to help you when you get invaded. You can also summon players to help you with boss fights if you're having a really hard time. But you can't play totally offline if you you, want to? You can. You can just choose to. Is that how you play uh, one and two, yes. Okay. I, I played disconnected from the internet right. because I didn't want to be invaded. Not because I didn't like the PvP. I don't like PvP as a general rule of thumb. I'm not fond of it. I don't like online PvP. I like playing physically against another person in the room in a fighting game. But yeah. I don't like being online and fighting people. Server latency is a real thing for me. Oh, it's sure. really frustrating when your inputs aren't working because of server latency or the connection's bad, stuff like that. And also... Here's the thing about a game like Dark Souls. Think about how desolate and empty and how hopeless everything is. Mm. Part of the appeal of that is that it's the same thing as Silent Hill, that isolation, or Metroid. Yeah. You're alone. But you when know? you bring in um, the internet, exactly. you're not alone anymore. You're not alone yeah, anymore. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of prefer my experience to be a solitary for dark souls experience i want it to be a solitary experience i don't mind interacting with npcs because these npcs are all in their own way broken people and it's interesting because they actually add to the atmosphere they add to the sad quality of what's happening but when people come in all they want to do is kill you and granted you could say well that's an aspect that that's threatening but there's no it ruins the mood of the game yeah because the player is not coming into the game to add to your experience the player is coming into the game to kill you and get your shit now when they kill you however many of the key items that unhollow you however many you have they get that you don't lose them but they get them and the reason why it's good to have more of them is because the more you have the more increases your chance of getting good drops when you kill a monster Mm. So, like, the more you have, the more your quote-unquote luck increases. Well, plus I can just see it, like, ruining the world you've described and the the mood it has created and running into these people. And then, like, all of a sudden, here comes some dude running up to you. Here comes Cumsock 99. I'm going to steal all your shit with this club. And, you know, it's like, what this, yeah, this doesn't belong here. The the thing that really frustrated me is the first time that I got invaded when I was playing Dark Souls 1, I was running around. I was like, I was really into it. I was like, I was progressing. I was like, what's around that corner? What does this door lead to? Where is the key? I'm like, I'm into exploring and uncovering the secrets of this environment. Then all of a sudden, you have been invaded by Shitlord 29. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, I guess I have to stop what I'm doing yeah. to deal with this fucktard. Yeah. For some people, the PvP, Dark Souls is all about the PvP because there are PvP builds. Yeah. You can modify certain armor and weapons specifically for PvP. That's how detailed the – Which some people might like that. Some That's people fine. like that. But I don't like that. So I played one and two offline. Now, now Dark Souls 3 and Bloodborne, you can choose to play offline. Yeah. And it doesn't disconnect you from your PlayStation network. Okay. Or if uh, Dark Souls two and three were on Xbox as well, so you could. I think was the first one on. No, I don't think the first. I think the first one was PlayStation exclusive. I could be wrong mm, about that. Okay, but Demon Souls I played online and rarely got invaded in the game. I'm not sure why. It doesn't matter. But uh, Demon Souls is sort of like a zero chapter. Okay. So. So there's been like like five games in the series. Well, yeah, Bloodborne, and by different publishers though. Bloodborne was a Sony exclusive, so Sony 
I believe, published that game. Atlas published Demon's Souls. It's just a niche thing. They just released it as a niche thing, but it just, the punishing difficulty and the level of character progression, it caught on with people. Yeah. Well, Portal was the same thing. Portal was just like a throw-in with like the orange box and it exploded into like, you know. Exploded into its own thing. So then Bandai Namco was like, we want to release Dark Souls. So then they released one, two, and three. Bandai Namco recently announced it's their fastest selling title ever. How weird! So it's gotten big. The series has gotten really big. Yeah, it sounds pretty cool. But you're right; it doesn't sound like my game. It sounds like the kind of thing I'm interested to hear you describe it. You know, just mm-hmm. explain it to me. <laughs> I want to hear. In terms of the tone, mood, and setting, it's the closest thing I can find to the post-sacrifice chapters of Berserk. Oh wow! Okay. Like after Griffith becomes Femto. Right, right, right. And monsters start coming into the world. There's a lot of scenes of guts wandering in these desolate areas, and he's fighting monsters. And the thing is, with his arrow hand, right, right. Well, it also becomes a cannon. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, he's in these haunted forests all the times, or he's in these old ruins and shit. And the monsters always come for him because the brand. He's marked yeah, by the yeah, brand. Yeah. His body and his soul do not belong to him, according to the god hand. It belongs to them, so they're always hunting him. Yeah. But, like, those elements of the show, and it's, like, of the story, and, like, monsters are encroaching on civilization, and mankind is in the state of decay, and they're trying to, like, preserve themselves, and, you know. There's so that's this, kind of a draw for you, for sure. Yeah, exactly. Although Berserk has I didn't, I didn't even, That didn't even occur to me. That's, in Berserk, the world hasn't completely collapsed. Well, where they are now, the world has completely collapsed into decline, except for one city. Yeah. Because something happened, and all three of the worlds merged, and all monsters are everywhere. So there's one city that's a haven, and if you don't live in that city, you're out in the quote-unquote badlands. Like, at any point in time, you could be attacked and killed by monsters. Like, there aren't really that many settlements or places where people live in groups out in the wild anymore in Berserk. But Dark Souls is kind of like that, but there's no one city that's a safe haven. Yeah, right. You're just out there. You're out there, and you're probably living alone or in very small groups. Ruby is like a lighter version of that. You know, sure. there's always those that they have their safe havens, but then if you go out in the wilderness in the wild, there's the grim. Are yeah. There, you know? Yeah. I guess that's a good way to put it. It's just kind of like the grim and Ruby. It's like, it's that same sort of thing. Like imagine a world where it was just over one with grim. Yeah. There wouldn't be societies. There'd be like survival hubs is what there would yep. be. You know, so that's essentially what it is. But don't even think of it in terms of like The Walking Dead, yeah. where it's like your people are armed and armored. It's like it's a very depressing world where resources are very hard to get. Mm. What are the chances of you finding a blacksmith? Yeah. They're very slim. Yeah. I just uh, wanna... A game that reminded me of that, um, uh, that, that, that gameplay style uh, that uh, long time ago, going back a ways, Way of the Samurai. That's the one you introduced me to, mm-hmm. where it was just like going out in the world and anything could happen. You just go out and start talking to people can i introduce you to way of the samurai yeah, yeah. was it because when we was when we were doing the Shinkyaku it was when game? we were playing the game yeah and okay. you were just like um you should try this game out it's really you know, it wasn't like a required like you need to do this because you know we're doing it for the game it was just one of those you should check this out because we're for, doing this right now for anybody that might be wondering what we're talking about i'm a tabletop role-playing gamer and ray is as well although he doesn't play quite as much as i do but a number of years ago i ran what we like to call the samurai game basically it was a game that i set the fantasy version of feudal japan and also there was like ancient china as well and kind of like the modern day like you know you had japan which was a small sliver of islands in the ocean and then you go across the bay and then there's china you know it's like the same thing the game was called shin hyakunin which i know translates into new 100 years what that name was, it was based on the resistance group that was fighting against this ninja master that was 
manipulating the politics of the land because he wanted to take everything over. Hmm. There was a much more grand scheme to everything. I mean, he was seeking to change history because things had happened in a previous life to him and he wanted to seize the power to alter those events. He actually wanted to get rid of samurai. He wanted to eliminate samurai because samurai were to blame for what had happened to him thousands and thousands of years ago. He wanted to change the world in such a way that it eliminated samurai because he felt that their culture was the detriment of everything. Mm -hmm. But it mostly was about his own personal pain. But the thing is, a lot of people were dying. A lot of people were getting killed. He was doing a lot of evil things to achieve his goal. And the samurai in my game were largely not like the samurai of real life. I'm fully aware of what dicks they were. This was a fantasy world. So the samurai of my game were largely those noble warrior poets that you read about in fictionalized accounts where they're, you know, they're either wandering around the land looking for ways to get stronger and prove their skill over other people or they're in service to lords. In my game, they were kind of like feudal Japanese versions of knights of chivalry. They're like the romanticized versions of samurai. Yeah, now he just spent two, three minutes explaining the story and it has only scratched the surface. And what you have to understand, this was all written by him. Like this is all, this was like the deepest role-playing game I've ever like been involved in. You know, we both played Robotech and mm-hmm. I've played Star Wars and I've played, you know, a number of these things based on the big eye, small mouth system. Nothing really came close to what Tom was doing with this game. There was just like really a lot going on. And I came in, I was a replacement for another dude, right? I don't know if you were a replacement. I think I just wanted to add you. I you wanted had, a fo- I Well, wanted... you had a dude that left, I thought. Uh, let me think. No, I don't think I did it. For the longest time, it was just Travis, Melissa, and James. Yeah. Then, I yeah. don't think I had a fourth guy. I wanted to add a fourth guy. And, and I then think, you're just like, why don't you come in? And don't I was you come like, in and right. play? And then you were Ryunosuke the cursed. The, uh, Turned out not to be cursed. The drunken bow staff fighter. Right. In right. contrast to the other characters who were swordsmen and ninja. Who actually ended up being... The best character in the game. Well, one 100... I was going to say one 108th of a warlike god that was so dangerous that the other gods conspired against him and they split his soul into 108 different fragments. And those 108 different fragments rain down to the planet and are continually reborn into new people. Do you see what I'm talking about? Like he wrote all this stuff. This is not like from a book or anything. I'm sure that there's like some mythology from which that it's derivative from. But the thing is, I wasn't consciously aping or stealing anything. Right. It wasn't like, you know, hey, look at this. This is a Chinese myth. I'm going to take this and use this for a game. I made it up on my own, but I'm certain that there are real-life things that I've heard in the past that subconsciously influenced me to tell the story. And when you think of tabletop role-playing, you think about, like, you know, a bunch of fat old dudes sitting around a table rolling dice, you know, with, like, all their paperwork and all this shit. I had been there, you know, in high school. I played Robotech, and I did, you know, I played all these other games through my 20s, and nothing was like this. Like, I had never sat down at a table and had the game master say, okay, here is your opening theme song. This is a sheet of paper, and I'm going to play a song on my radio, and this is going to be the opening theme song, and you follow along on this piece of paper that describes all the things that are happening during the opening theme song of the show. This is going to set the mood, and we did this at the beginning of every game. We sat down, we read this paper, we listened to this song, and that set the mood and the tone for the three, four hours that were to come. That's never happened. Usually it was just like, all right, everybody get your characters out. You know, I'm let's roll initiative. Tom's game was like more elaborate. I sat down and I was like, what did I get myself into, man? And then the whole time you're playing, he's got the radio on. Started out as a cassette with like all this like ambient 
like kind of the music you'd hear when you go into a uh, like a Chinese food restaurant, you know, that real ambient, uh, you know, mm-hmm. just setting the mood, setting the tone. And he had sake. He brought sake. And we drank sake before, after the game. I don't remember what it was. We did it the traditional way, too. We poured for each other. Yeah, we poured. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was just like all these things that brought the game to a level that was like, we weren't just sitting around rolling dice, man. We were like, we were having an experience, an immersive experience. Think about it. There were so many episodes where, and we called them episodes. They weren't sessions. We called them episodes because I wrote it like it was an anime. That's right, yeah. At the at the beginning, there'd be the opening theme. Yeah. I'd have a series of events, like you know, I'd number them one, two, three, four, five, and in my brain, I had the memorized when in the song the next scene would play. And while the music was playing, I would call out one, and then we and would then read paragraph, paragraph one, line one. Line. Then I call out two. So in my head, what I was seeing, I was narrating it for yeah. them. Um, uh, the only time I was paying attention, though, is when the paragraph was about my character. Oh, right. Or the best character. Yeah. Otherwise, I was, like, zoning out. And then I would have, like, battle music or I'd have dramatic music. Like, when certain things were happening, I had music that I wanted to play to set a specific mood or tone. Yeah. And then at the end of the night, I'd have an ending theme. And the ending theme, I maybe went over with you guys, like, two or three times, like, what I see during the ending. Then after that, I'd have you guys write, what are the three most important things that happened in the episode yeah. tonight? And there were many episodes where there was no combat. Yeah. It was all role play. Yeah, there was no dice rolling sometimes. It was all like discussion now, or Yeah, just just the characters interacting with character each other. Building, yeah. Character building, advancing their storylines. Yeah. In fact, it got to the point where like every character was so robust and fully realized that was four different games happening at that table. <laughs> Think of it like if you're watching Game of Thrones or something, where it's like yeah. there's so many different stories happening. Or somehow they're connected to each other and they cross over once in a while, but they could also be their own thing. Uh, if this also makes sense, Grand Theft Auto Five, where you jump between the three different characters yeah. in the game, right. and you're you know, well, they were all tied to this group called the Shin Hyakunin, and yeah. you guys all went on missions together. Yeah, but there was also many, many times where you guys were between pursuing... missions or between you know battles or between whatever, where it was just like, okay, now we're dealing with you, and you're over here separate from everything, right? And this character's over here separate from everything. And we were just going around that way, but then there would be the other times where we'd be together interacting with each other too right and tom would do all the npcs and he would do voices for them male or female monster didn't matter he did all the voices and it wasn't just like you know you used your normal voice you would no i actually tried to imitate you would go all over the place it would be like the characters and the mannerisms as well like if i was playing sumi for example i wanted like an aggressive woman who was a fighter and a scrappy girl whereas if i was playing neko who was the geisha that trained Melissa's character on how to actually be a woman because her character was a female, but she was raised in a sword fighting school. And mm. because this is feudal Japan, although it's a fantasy version of feudal Japan, women were, of course, relegated to certain roles. It was a patriarchal society. Yeah. And while there were certain fantasy elements I wanted to have, there were also certain historical allegories I wanted to have too. So I had to show how women could be strong without having to be just like men. Yeah. You know, so they were strong in different ways. And when I played Neko, she was the geisha that taught Kachi how mm-hmm. to be a woman. They were two very different people. If you think about it, Sumi in a society like that would have been a very distinct, unusual woman because there weren't that many warrior women in this world. Yeah. It's just not the way that the world was. And in fact, when she showed up, it was like, okay, we're going to get this rambunctious, aggressive woman. 
Whereas most of the women were like typically what you would expect from sort of a caricature version of of feudal Japan, where it's like they're very demure and wearing walk, a kimono and yeah, bringing wearing, you your dishes and, exactly. And like being like the council when you needed to speak to someone, being gentle, yeah. being sort of healer types, that kind of thing. When Sumi showed up, it was like, okay, here's this aggressive sword fighting woman that fought with a serrated katana again anime i could do what the fuck i want that's right but like i had to develop characters but then i would play doji who was like the leader just sort of like the seething ninja leader of the shin hyakunen and there were many different personalities i had like you know yamagata was the aggressive male friend that was just like i want to fight all the time and stuff like that it's just very different characters and I was the literal cast of thousands. When you guys wanted to interact with someone, I had to play the character. Now, you may be wondering, Tom, why are you so insane about it? Why isn't it just a game? Here's the thing. When I was 10 years old, I discovered Dungeons & Dragons. That was all about dice rolling, killing monsters, getting golden experience, and buying better weapons. Mm -hmm. As I started to grow older and I started to read books and consume television and movies – on a more artistic level, not just on the level of how does this entertain me, although there is still plenty of things I absorb on that level, I started to think about why do I still want to keep gaming? Hmm. What is the point? And I realized that if my gaming experiences now are going to be the same as my gaming experiences when I'm 10, 12, 14, 16 years old, there's not any real fucking point. I'm not getting any satisfaction out of sitting down at a table and just rolling dice anymore. Yeah. I'm reading books. I'm watching movies. I'm reading comic books. It's like, why do we play these games? Because we want to have adventures similar to the characters that we read about. Yeah. You know, we, we want to experience that. I want to give my players an experience that lets them go on that adventure. Yeah. I also don't want to keep doing the same thing that I did 20 years ago. 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. I want to evolve the form because if you reach an end point with that hobby and it's not giving you anything new, it's time to stop doing it quite <laughs> honestly. Not to mention as we get older as people, we reach a point in our lives where it's more difficult to dedicate a chunk of time to getting together to yeah. play a game. You become parents, you become homeowners, you have jobs that require you to travel. You gain other interests. You meet other friends. There's other things you want to do. Yeah. You want to play in other games. For me, if I have a group of players that is going to be like, yes, Tom, I'm going to give you four to six hours every other Sunday or every Sunday, and we're going to play this game. I want that to be the most rewarding four to six hours of that person's week. Mm-hmm. I want that person to look forward to that experience. And if it's just like, hey, come over, let's roll some dice. Well, People have things to do, especially as we get older. Yeah. So I want it to be a rewarding experience. I wanted people to walk away from the table going, you know what? I'm glad I dedicated the time to this activity. Yeah, and that always happened. You would get up that day and you would get done like the few things that you had time for. And you'd be like, I really need to get more done, but I got to get to this fucking game. All right. And then you get over there. They're like, all right, I'm here. You know, I put aside all my shit. And then after that four or six hours or whatever is over, you've completely forgotten about the little bit of, um, you, like a little bit like, oh man, I gotta, it's, it's almost like a responsibility. But then by the end of the night, it's like, this is why I do this. At the end of the day, what I want is the players to feel satisfied that they dedicated the time to it. Yeah. If the players aren't and satisfied. Then we would carpool. You know, we went over to our mutual friend James' house and played over there. And Rest then in went, peace, uh, brother. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We role-played with a dead person. 
I've role played with more than one. No, so. yeah. We'd go over there and then we'd have about, about 40 minutes on the way home. And we would only talk about the game. We'd BS on the way there about whatever. But then on the way back, we talked about the game. Me talking about the world and you guys asking me questions. And then we'd, we'd all meet. We all lived near this other fella, Travis. And then we'd all meet there and then we'd pile in the car and we'd go to James' house. But then we'd get back after talking for 40 minutes. And then you would get in your car with your wife and go home. Mm-hmm. And then me and Travis would talk another 45 minutes <laughs> about the game after that. You know, That's probably just... the most satisfying thing that anyone could ever tell me about the games that I ran is that they were thinking about them when they weren't at the table. Yeah. Because I've been in some games where I've seen people show up and they just phone it in every week. Like we played in one. Uh, you together. and I have been in games where that's happened. And together. of course, you know, I found not the real- samurai game. I think the only person that ever had a bad week in the Samurai game was me, quite honestly. Like every once in a while, I might run an episode where it just wasn't that great. And it wasn't that the events that happened weren't that great. It was more because I was sick or because I was exhausted or Mm. because I'd crunched the episode. It was very rare. I think most of the episodes were very, very good. But every once in a while, there was one where it's just like, man, it felt like a chore to get through it for me. But by the end of the night, it was still satisfying. By the end of the night, I was having just as much fun as everybody else. Yeah, and you know, we'd sit and talk about it afterwards. And I think that mine and Travis's like real world friendship kind of like spilled into the game where we would always be scheming together about how we're going to defeat the bad guy. And so it was a challenge for you. Well, now they're putting their heads together right. against me. I need to figure out new ways for the bad guy to outsmart them. And, uh, you know, it's like a back and forth. But I will say, I gained such a familiarity with all the characters in that game that mm. I knew what you guys were going to do. Yeah. Even when you guys started scheming together, I knew. But it was how a you very, a very unlikely pairing of like somber ninja character yeah. versus the drunk bow staff fighter. Right. But yet yeah, they were like buddies. Yep. Travis played his character like, uh, if you can imagine, like Splinter from the Ninja Turtles, like yeah. very, uh, oh yes, we must do this thing now, mm-hmm. and we were very like serious and somber. And then, you know, Ryunosuke was like, ah, come on, let's go and, you know, let's, yep. let's tear it up, man. I think my favorite thing that I did in that game was when you guys... Recruit me. Well, yeah, besides that. I think the adventure where you guys actually stormed Akemi's tower, mm-hmm. the demon tower, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that was probably my favorite series of episodes yeah. because it dealt with Chono. It was kind of like the resolution of that character, like wanting to make up for his past mistakes. They don't know who you're talking about. But (laughs) now it's just me and you talking. But I really liked that series of events because it was the first time in a long time that that all the characters were doing something together. Yeah. Your characters would cross paths, but here we are. We're all doing something together. And it's been a long time since we did something together. The games would be like seasons. And it was cool seeing the characters grow from season to season. And then mm-hmm. finally, when they come together and they're stronger and they're wiser, and now they're tackling this more powerful challenge. Yeah, it was like something that we were like leading up to it for a while. Then yeah. it was finally happening. Overall, that's the one that I remember the most. Yeah. Travis decided that he wanted to run games. So then we, you yeah. and I, and it was fun to uh, be a player with you. You had always been the GM. We were kind of following your lead. But then me and you got to play that role of this two schemers, you know, we're going to try and outsmart Travis and (laughs) figure out. Me and you were great in that game. The Zone of the Unders games. Yeah, he did uh, Zone of the Unders and Final Fantasy. He did a Final Fantasy game too. Yeah, we think we did three Zone of the Unders games. We did one Final Fantasy chapter. I liked my Sid character in that Final Fantasy game. A Sid-like character. He wasn't a total blatant (laughs) ripoff. Well, he was named Sid. 
Well, was he? Yeah, Travis uh, was running a Final Fantasy off. game, and I said, "Can I be Sid?" Yeah, and he was like, "Yeah, sure, no problem." I think that's kind of cool, actually. In the Zone of the Enders game, I remember I was playing one of the. Uh, I forget what they're called, but one of the artificially intelligent robots, yeah, yeah, yeah. like Jehudi. Yeah, yeah. I was playing one of them. So my character was a combat machine. Yeah. And it was a lot of fun to play because the character went from having like sort of like this juvenile view of the world to becoming almost like a, a monk. Yeah. But over time. But I remember that that game was great. I mean, me and you were great in that game. And there was one other player that I, I like Chad's character a lot, too. Mm. But I thought that the other two, they didn't really bring it. They were not really into it. I don't really yeah. know what they were doing at the table. And, and, little- <laughs> and it's a shame because, like, you know, I know, you know, having played in your game, and I know Travis put in the same amount of time and effort, and just seeing people, it makes me kind of mad because I know what goes into it. Yeah. Uh, and- because I've been a game master myself, and I know, you know, what goes into it. And what I put into my game mastering back in high school was nowhere near the level that you guys with the theme songs and, the you know, the, the elaborate story elements and character elements and for people to be sitting at the table not giving 100% back to that game master not was really like kind of infuriating. They didn't really have a defined sense of who their characters were. Right. They were waiting for things to happen to them. Yeah, right, right, like, right. We were thinking about I would come characters. to you and be like, this is what I want to happen. I would create character flaws for my character mm-hmm. to overcome. I think, remember we did the drug problem? Are my drug problems over? <laughs> Remember with Ryanosuke, we yeah. did the, I'm like, he, he becomes addicted to a thing that makes him stronger. Right. And then, you know, it was tearing him up. And, but he's like, but I can't win these fights unless I take, you know, he has to overcome. I want, I want something like that. And yeah. Tom's it like, wasn't, right. it wasn't like you weren't, your character wasn't drugging up because you just wanted to party and feel good. You were doing it because you wanted to get more power to win fights. Yeah. It was an obsession story more than an addiction story. Although yeah. addiction was just a byproduct of that. If I was trying to make a grand message, it was about the dangers of, obsession even if you're trying to achieve a personally fulfilling goal such as becoming a stronger fighter this is not the way to do it Mm. zone of the enders i'm like well it's a konami property so i'm going to play a character that's akin to solid snake yeah right so i played a solid snake character and i even did the voice yeah you did the voice (laughs) jack was cool and then that rolls into the character that you played oh yeah well i was able yeah well you were you were um, the... Oh, I played uh, Revolver Ocelot. There you go. He was a variation of the young I was Revolver trying to make Ocelot. you remember. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I don't remember the character's name now, but it was uh, very much like young Revolver Ocelot using two pistols. Yeah, yeah. And I remember you would always sort of like do meta references to Metal Gear yeah. through Snake's point of view. Right. I would always do meta references through Revolver Ocelot's point of view. So in a sense, we were playing Solid Snake and Revolver Ocelot in a Zone of the Enders Enders role play game. (laughs) It was like, it was the kind of thing where like if if Kojima was But we'd never met. I remember that. You you were over here and I was over here. And then there was that, we finally had that moment in the game where the two characters met. Well, the first two games I played Abel at the start. The intention was always to come back and play Abel, but at the end of the second game, Everyone thought that he'd gotten he killed. Was, yeah, he was gone. And then then in the third game, I was like, I'm going to play a new character. And right, I didn't tell anybody right, that right. I was still intending to come back to Abel. Right, right. I was, I'm going to play a new character. It's going to be sort of a, a reference to Revolver Ocelot since you're playing a reference to Solid Snake. Yeah, you totally ripped me off. <laughs> I, I did. But it was too. fun. <laughs> it was. <laughs> but the thing is, my character was working against the group and they never knew it. Yeah. I just remember the satisfaction in like you were always the game master. And then uh, when we were playing... When we finally became player characters together, we were on the same side. Mm-hmm. And then I finally had my moment 
where you know you were always the game master i was always a player and i finally had the moment when our two characters met the solid snake character and the ocelot character met and you were doing something you were planting a bomb or doing a thing and i had that moment where i got to come in the room and hold up my gun and be like freeze and watch you sweat and be like okay uh okay here's what i'm <laughs> like finally of course, I had to play the character that way because I had to play into what I was really doing. Yeah. You were Sid in Final Fantasy. I was essentially playing Mal- Malcolm Reynolds Mal- from Mal- Reynolds, uh, Firefly yeah. <laughs> in Basically. that game because I had the airship. I was the captain. Mm-hmm. And that was nice of Travis. Like, Travis finally gave me my – I was like, I'm going to make you the main – because, like, everybody was a main character. Yeah, like, Travis, a- Travis was the main character in your game, really. In every – what I call it is a signature character. Yeah. Like every show, every game that I run, there's always like one signature character. Everybody gets equal development. It's just that one character might get a little more than... So I can't say everybody gets equal. In my current game, Melissa's the main character, yeah. which is the first time my wife has ever been the main character of a game. Mm. But can you really say that Kachi, her character from the Samurai game, isn't a main character? Like She's just as much development as everyone yeah. Oh, else. Yeah, it was like the four of them were the main characters, but Travis was still the... He was the signature right. character. Yeah, like yeah, you yeah. know, if, you, if it was a show, you had to pick one character that the series was quote-unquote about. In that game, it would have been Travis's character. Yeah. And in my current game, which is my opus so far, Melissa would be the signature character. She's never been the signature. This is her first chance. Mm. And I've always focused on other players right right right. so yeah in the final fantasy game you were the signature character essentially yeah that travis gave me the chance because i had the airship i was the captain of the airship so i was the captain of the show and everybody was like following mm-hmm. my lead and i was like oh i hope i can pull this off i was kind of hoping that i would end up as a member of your crew mm. that didn't happen i was really hoping it would like i was really hoping that i would be like the guy to move in and sort of become the mechanic of the ship yeah i was kind of well you had a mechanic already huh? that was like the love interest of that character yeah. i think if i recall yeah yeah i was I, I was just hoping that i would be able to supplant that role and become that character because i wanted to have a role on your ship see cuz it's final fantasy i have a clever way of a summon i had a train i had the doom train <laughs> and it was an underwater train. Yeah, Why yeah. is it an underwater train? Because it's fucking Final Fantasy. That's Final Fantasy. That's why. Yeah, the thing is, I wanted to have the Doom train because I wanted to have a summon. But ultimately, what I really wanted was to become a member of your crew. Yeah. I think that would have made more sense. Like yeah. If your character is a signature character, assembling the rest of the group is something that happened in a role-playing game. Like I would be like, you know, hey, you're a good mechanic. I want you on my ship. Yeah. You know, like that, that kind of thing. Yeah, we but, did like how many? Three Zone of the Enders? Two or did, three? We did three Zone of the and Enders. And then one game. Final Fantasy. One and Final then I started working real weird hours. And then Travis moved away. Yeah, so Travis, Travis was, fucking uh, moved away. Yeah, so, Dick. Traitor. Okay. <laughs> Traitor! <laughs> Break out my fucking shock stick and beat him up with all his kung fu. Yeah. I don't know if he listens to this, but uh, yeah, we had a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, one last point I want to make about the RPGs is we talk about the players that kind of sandbagged it, getting drunk the night before, showing up with fucking hangovers and stuff like that. Yeah. And the thing that pisses me off about it is think about who I was. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a homeowner. I didn't have kids. My job was something that I did 8.30 to 5, Monday through Friday. Yeah. Travis had to travel. He had to work longer hours. Yeah. He had kids. He had Kung Fu. Travis was involved in a lot more shit than yeah. I was, and he was putting the game together. And for these guys to show up and just like... On par with what you did. I mean, he had the theme songs, right. and he had really strong characters and really strong... I'm not tooting my own horn. I believe that ultimately my games were stronger than his. I'm not saying that his games were bad. I just believe that my games were stronger than mm. his. His games are plenty enjoyable. Don't yeah. get me wrong. I love playing Abel. 
Yeah. And I love playing Sid. Yeah, Those I didn't know what I, I was getting into, into when he asked us to all come in. I'm like, oh, I was, you yeah. know, I played with Tom long enough. Let's see, who, you know, see if yeah. Travis. And, and I was like, was you know, great. Travis, Travis needs players. He deserves players. Yeah. And I'm going to give him everything gonna, I have. Yeah, and I did in both gonna, games. Who are actually going to give their yeah. all. And which never occurred to me, like people not giving their all at the table. Because, you know, my experience had been everybody at the Samurai game had given 110%. I, I demanded it. I, yeah. I pretty much And then the first it. time I ever ran into. You did replace someone. You replaced John. I knew I did. Yeah. But I went a couple seasons without someone. Okay. I went like two seasons. I think I played the first game I had John. The second game didn't. Then I brought you in for the third one. Yeah. And then we played. I want to say we played two more seasons after that, and then there were the three quote-unquote movies that wrapped up the storyline. Mm-hmm. The movies were shorter seasons yeah. that wrapped up the storyline. Yeah, we're only scratching the surface, man. Yeah. There was like so many layers of shit. We could do hours and, and hours yeah, and man. hours of podcasts. You'd be so shit. fucking bored. Yeah. But, well, no, they'd love it. Because yeah, they well, love everything we do. That's true, yeah. It's weird that they do. But, that they but just, yeah. We can talk about any old shit, and they're, they're like eating it up. Yeah. Like 10 I, million listeners. When I say that I think my games are stronger than Travis's, it's not because he was bad at what he did. I think it's because he was experimenting with the same type of game master storytelling that I was doing. Mm-hmm. And he just wasn't as familiar with how to construct those plots. He did good work. Don't get me wrong. I think you're biased. But oh, fuck you. <laughs> I think that he was still learning the craft at that point in time. Mm. Whereas I think now, I think he does run a game for people in Tennessee. Yeah, he mentioned that last yeah. time I talked to him. But yeah, uh, but cool. I'm, I'm sure that like as time has gone on and he's developed that craft, I'm sure his games are wonderful. They Those were wonderful. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with them. It's just that I could tell that there were some instances where I felt he could have done better exposition or could have done better transitions, that kind of thing. So I helped how I could, not by telling him how to run the game, but by giving as much of myself as I could to a particular scene and, yeah. and giving it, infusing it with a bit more life, where it was natural for my character yeah. to do so. Yeah, me and you and Travis were certainly the ones that gave the most of our... At least to, to, to the games that he ran. Yeah, yeah. So then now you understand why I didn't have certain players in the samurai game. I didn't want it to become a shit show. I yeah. wanted to be 100% invested in what everyone was doing at the table. And with those two guys, I wouldn't have been. Yeah. So and it's, it's not like saying those two guys does anything. We mentioned me, we mentioned you, we mentioned Travis, and then you touched on Chad. So now yeah. it's like, I like Chad as a player. Know, He's divisive at the we know table. We're because talking he, about. Yeah. He likes to, exactly. We know who we're talking about, <laughs> but, and, and again, those, those guys are my friends. I love them, you yeah. know, but, they, I haven't seen them since the game. They're but, not, you know, they're not yeah, bad guys. They're not really great gamers, mm. which is fine. It's just some people you do certain things with, some people you do other things with. Yeah. So some people you just ignore, like Denny. And <laughs> Denny, you will never sit at my gaming table. Yeah, he's. I wouldn't. I wouldn't even. You bring your own dice. You ain't touching mine. No. How, he, he would never be able to get out of his box to get at him anyway. <laughs> Just be scratching at the glass. I'd be like, Denny, so what does your character say? And I'd be, I wouldn't hear anything because right. we caught out his tongue and he's not allowed to talk. <laughs> Denny, you're the worst fucking role player ever. Denny, you having fun at the table? Yeah. Oh. That's all he can say. He's censoring himself, but I don't give a shit. <laughs> Oh my God! Well, uh, I would. I love have no to... idea how we got on that tangent, but it doesn't matter. It, Greatest it, podcast in the world. Did you have anything else you wanted to bring up? It doesn't matter because I'm Bison. Oh, bef- hold on, Bison! I'm putting my hand up. I need <laughs> one more thing, very quickly related to Dark Souls. There is now a 2D game, side-scrolling adventure game that is essentially Dark Souls in 2D. Oh, weird! Uh, it's called Salt and Sanctuary. 
Is it, it, any, is it related it's, it's, in any it's, way? It's, it's like a ripoff. So in that style. It's in that style. We'll make the, a 2D Dark Souls. It, essentially, that's it. Okay. It's, it was made by two people. Oh, wow. It's awesome. Yeah, games like that are always intriguing to me. It's one or two, like one guy. Like, wasn't it like Braid or something like that? Like, was like one dude made the whole game or something? I, I don't remember. Yeah, I don't know. These two guys made this game, and it's got... All that same shit. It's got item acquisition, leveling up your character and leveling up their different attributes to decide how you want to play, desolate environments, terrifying monsters, tough battles, a pretty good combat system for 2D. It's got a lot of platforming elements to it because it's a 2D game, so it has to. It's called Salt and Sanctuary. I highly recommend it. Right now, it's PlayStation exclusive on the networks, but I believe that exclusivity deal is going to end soon. Okay, so it might show up on... Like maybe Steam or something. Yeah, eventually I think it will. I can't believe how much of it they captured. In fact, it's a pretty shameless copy of it, but it's so good. Yeah. That if well, that's how uh, I play a game called uh, Freedom Planet, and uh, Freedom Planet is like the most blatant ripoff of Sonic you've ever seen in your life. All the elements of Sonic are in there, but it's it's so damn fun. Like who cares? And also that Mega Man clone i played called 20xx yeah yeah it's okay the designers of the original games they can't be anything but flattered that people out there love what they do so much hey it came out yeah which is more than can be said for mighty number nine this is what i'll say about salt and sanctuary i really hope koji garashi is looking at that game and if he's not sweating bullets about bloodstain right now he should be or if he's not it's because you know what I see what they're doing. Yeah. This is going to be even better. Yeah. Because if Bloodstained is even half as good as that, I'll be satisfied. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. All right, Bison. Yeah. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Before Bison, before he pulled, you run yeah, us over. He, he pulled okay. over. He's yeah. waiting. Don't cross your arms <laughs> and give me that look, Mr. Bison. That M stands for Mr. until you stop acting like a child. <sighs> so. You're talking to a guy about to run us over in the truck. Well, and he's he acting very entitled about it. Yeah, yeah. You just sit there. Yeah. You got defeated. Yes, exactly. Stop stealing trucks. What is it with trucks? Movies. What about them? I wanted to talk a little bit briefly about some movies that I've seen in the theater. I recently saw a Stanley Kubrick double feature on the big screen. Oh, yeah. They showed 2001, A Space Odyssey, and The Clockwork Orange back-to-back. So I went uh, with my nephew. He couldn't show up for 2001, but he showed up for A Clockwork Orange. So how'd those hold up? Well, A Clockwork Orange is not any different at all of an experience to me on the big screen. Yeah. It's the exact same movie as what I saw when I saw it on a video. The only difference is Stanley Kubrick, he had this really weird way about him when it came to releasing movies on home video. When he did his home releases when he was alive, it was all pan and scan. Mm-hmm. And he was asked about it. Why would a guy who is the master of the moving camera, the moving frame, and the master of the long lens. Like, there is nobody better at the moving frame than Stanley Kubrick, even to this day. Like, those scenes of people walking down hallways and then turning. Kubrick was the master of capturing everything that needed to be in that frame was there. But he He, filmed in 4x3. Well, what's that? Is that what you're talking about? No, no, no. Uh, No, what he did was when the movies were released to home video, he would put them in pan and scan. Oh, okay. So they weren't filmed that way. They were... No. Okay. And his argument would be, when you're watching it in 16 by 9, that's supposed to be for the movie theater. When you're watching it in the home format, you need to reformat the So movie. to this day, that's still... No, because he's gone now. Okay. So now that they've released his movies since then, they've been released... So it hasn't been... So seeing it in the theater 69. wasn't a different experience then, really? 
Because now that you've already seen them. Well, I'd already seen The Clockwork Orange in 16 by 9. Okay. So it didn't really change my perspective of the movie. Not to mention, that movie is not really a big screen movie in my opinion. Mm. It's a very topical movie, especially for right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the hypersensitivity to social issues yeah. and how we can browbeat people and condition people <laughs> into not liking things that are completely natural to like, like sex and violence. And there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with liking them in and of itself. I mean, obviously, the character in The Clockwork Orange is a very troubled young man who acts on those impulses and yeah. he needs help. Yeah. But that all comes from inside. You know, like all that violence comes from within. Although music is the cipher for that. Music is what inspires him to perform acts of violence. Yeah. Or he see like he'll read the Bible and he'll fantasize that he's the Roman whipping Jesus mm-hmm. on the way to the, the uh, Mount Golgotha and stuff. And like that's black comedy. Right. That's darkly yeah, that's, humorous, but it's not like the Bible made him violent. He's just a violent person. Yeah, that's inherent. That's not, and, yeah. and needs help. Mm-hmm. Those messages of like, how far do we take it? In the movie, he gets brainwashed. He gets physically conditioned to be unable to make choices about sex and violence. Yeah. And it's all because the government he lives in is a totalitarian government looking for ways to perform thought control on the criminals Mm -hmm. because they want to turn their prisons into political prisons Mm. because you know they're like looking to put away all of the voices of opposition to the things that they want to accomplish so their idea is let's brainwash all of our criminals so that they can't commit crimes so that we can move forward with that and it's like it's not the type of help these people need prison it should be to rehabilitate people but not to change people Mm -hmm. so that all those messages are still the same so like i didn't really get anything different out of the movie i enjoyed it as much as i did the first time i ever saw it yeah but 2001 was a very different experience yeah i was gonna say i remember that being like uh you had to wait like a really long time for that movie to get good like it like the last 45 or so I remember it being like, kind of like, oh my god, this is like, this is a very typical '70s sci-fi movie for the first like hour or so. Mm-hmm. Real slow burn, like uh, Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Yeah, very... which Star Trek: The Motion Picture takes a lot of its inspiration from. Yeah, exactly. Is that still like kind of hold true? Well, yes, but when I saw it on the big screen, yeah, I finally figured out what that movie <laughs> is actually about. First of all, let me ask you a question. Hmm. What do you think the movie's about? It's been so long since I've even seen it, man. I couldn't even answer that okay. question. Like, so, I wouldn't be able to give you a proper answer to that question without seeing it again for myself. If you've seen it a lot growing up, then you're going to take a different meaning from your youth to yes. now. Now, me having seen it two or three times 25 plus years ago, I can't answer the question properly. I don't think I could. So let me go ahead and talk what the movie's about. And I'm going to spoil it because I don't give a fuck at this point. The movie's from. The, <laughs> How old is it? The movie's from like the, either the early 70s. or the, I think it's from the, from the 60s, actually. All right. So Denny's got it covered, man. So the movie opens with the dawn of time. Okay? Right, right. And there are these monkeys. There are yes. these primates. Yeah. And they're living by this watering hole. And another group of primates comes to the watering hole. And the way that these primates engage with each other when they're in conflict is they scream at each other. Mm -hmm. So all they do is they scream and make noise and they howl at each other. And the group of primates that had control over the watering hole, they lose it because they're scared of the other group. So then they just – they're surviving. They're out there in the middle of the, the vast desert or whatever and they're just trying to survive. And then 
they're living this sort of meaningless existence where they're just going through the motions. Mm -hmm. They're surviving. They're not bettering themselves. They don't have the water. They're weak. And then one morning they all wake up and the monolith is there. Now the monolith, for those of you who don't know, is this giant obelisk. It's shaped like a rectangle and it's pure black. Mm -hmm. And that's the famous music, yeah. the Thus Spake Zarathustra. Yep. Whenever the monolith appears, you hear that music. Mm -hmm. Okay. The idea is that when this appears, something important is happening. Mm -hmm. And the primates interact with it. They're, they're, they're screaming at it at first, and then they become curious about it, and they all start interacting with it and touching it. And shortly after that, one of the primates is digging through a pile of bones. Oh, I need to point out that there are mm -hmm. these taper-like creatures mm -hmm. that, like, they live, like, right with these primates. They kind of, you know, like, as the primates are eating plants, the tapers are eating plants, and they're all kind of coexisting. Well, then one of these primates notices a bone and he picks it up and gradually he starts to realize that this can be used to bludgeon he drops the bone on the rib cage and like some of the ribs snap off and fly away and then the primate starts getting this idea that oh i can do something with this he starts smashing the skeleton yeah. so then the primates this is the group of primates that got scared away from the watering hole they go back to the watering hole <laughs> with these bones <laughs> yep. and they start screaming at the other group of primates what ends up happening is one of the the two are screaming at each other, but the ones with the bones, you notice they're walking a little more upright than the other group because they've been using these bones to hunt and kill. Yeah. So because of that, as time has gone on, their physiology has adapted because now they're using tools to do stuff. So they have to run faster. They have to move in a different fashion. They're not just monkeys. They're acting differently now. Mm -hmm. They're evolving into people. Yeah. Via murder. <laughs> I think 2001 is a really optimistic film. Yeah. I, I think it's a very hopeful film when we get to that. Yeah. So what ends up happening is one of the primates that's screaming at the group with the bones, the ones that are walking around, right? He stays out by the watering hole. He must be the leader of the group. Sure. Well, the primates with the bones, one of their leader very hesitantly approaches like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. If you don't back off, I'm going to do it. And boom, he clubs the primate and he falls over. And every all the other primates they freak out on both sides yeah. well then the primates with the bones they just start beating this corpse bloody yeah. with the bones and then the other primates who had taken the watering hole from them earlier they run away there's no explanation of how much time has passed it could have been months it could have been years it, it could really have been matter. generations yeah. it could have been thousands of years it doesn't really matter one group of primates has controlled this watering hole for this long now another one controls it well then when the primates with the bones with the weapons they like they start celebrating their victory and they throw the bone up into the sky and then as the bone is spinning around and spinning around, the scene shifts into the near future. Mm -hmm. But at that point was the near future. Right. And the bone now it's instead of looking at the blue sky, you're looking at a star field. Mm -hmm. And then you're looking instead of the bone, there's a spaceship in its place. It's mm -hmm. like a shuttle in its yep. place. And from there it goes into showing how mankind has evolved to now we're like we're not fighting over watering holes anymore. Now we're in space. The way the story goes, there's this important guy, Dr. Haywood Floyd, mm -hmm. who is traveling to the moon. He's part of this like inter international council of, of aeronautics. And um, he's traveling to the moon because something has happened on the moon. There's a portion of the moon 
that has been cut off from all media coverage, all inspection, no news is going on, it's a complete blackout. Okay. And the story that they're giving people is that there's this epidemic that broke out, so anybody that's there is not allowed to leave because they're afraid that you know it could the epidemic could spread and nobody's allowed to go there. Well, the truth is that they've discovered a monolith buried under the surface of the moon, just like the one that the primates found. Mm. And they want to know what it is. While they're inspecting the monolith, it transmits a message to Jupiter. And it's this high-pitched whine that even in the vacuum of space with their spacesuits on, they hear it and it makes them all go deaf for a while. Mm. But when the transmission ends, that's when they decide to send Dr. David Bowman and Dr. Frank Poole and the three scientists in hibernation along with HAL 9, the HAL 9000. Yeah, HAL, the yeah, I wouldn't remember like names and stuff so like that. that. They decide to send them to Jupiter, but the thing is they don't tell them why they're sending them. They, they believe that they're going for, for a different reason. Mm-hmm. So even Bowman and Poole and everybody else, they don't know why they're going. They think they're going for reason A, but there's really a different reason. Yeah. So along the way... Hal is supposedly the most sophisticated computer of his type, acts independently, controls all the ship's functions. Mm. He's like a member of the crew. Well, no computer in his series of computers has ever made a mistake. And he detects a failure of a radar dish, which is important on the discovery, which is the ship they're on, for them to be able to communicate with Earth. So they have to go outside the ship and they have to investigate the, the failure of this module. Now, there's a lot of long sequences of space journeys and classical music showing off like how mankind is functioning in this outer space environment mm-hmm. and stuff like a lot of long scenes. It's yeah, like, I remember the guy running and the a lot of a lot of yeah. Exactly. So like the story is, is not as complex as the visuals that are being used yeah. to, to describe it. Right. But I don't really think that the movie is meant to be a technological marvel. I think the fact that it's a technological marvel, and this is Takubi's credit is a side effect. It's a byproduct of the story that he is trying to tell. He's like, well, I'm trying to tell a story about mankind traveling through space. So in order for me to do that, I need to shoot these scenes in a certain way. In order for me to do that, I need to capture the majesty of space, the infinite vastness of it, and how small we are in it, and how we have to interact with it. And I need to do this in a very deliberate fashion, because Stanley Kubrick... He did not shoot things for no reason. Everything that is in the frame is there for a reason. Everything that is happening exists exactly as he wants it to happen. Now, you may not like the way that he makes movies, but there is nothing unintentional about a Stanley Kubrick film. Every single scene, every single second of a Kubrick film is important. He's not even my favorite director, but I recognize what he is as a filmmaker. Sure. Everything he's doing, all those slow scenes, all those slow shots of women walking on Velcro shoes down the hallways of passenger shuttles, those things mean something. What happens is Hal reports a failure of the communication module. They go out there to check it out. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with it. Hal is like, that must be a mistake. I detected a problem with it. And they're like, okay, well, you know, well, what do you recommend it's we cool. do? It's cool, man. It happens. They ask Hal why, and Hal's basically like, I can't explain the reason for it. All I know is I didn't make a mistake. They're like, what do you suggest we do? And so Hal is like, let's just put the module back in. Yeah. Let's let it fail. And then that way we can determine why this error came up. Mm-hmm. Because everything that happens in outer space, there's a reason for it, and it all needs to be documented, and it all needs to be verified. Like, even today. So... Bowman and Poole are like, okay, 
then Bowman says, uh, Dr. Poole, could you come and uh, talk to me? I want to show you something that's going on in the uh, my uh, my maintenance pod. So they go into one of those like shuttles that yep. they take outside. I remember that. And they close the door and they talk. Right. And basically they're like, what are we going to do? We, you know, Hal's failing. We think Hal's failing. And Poole's like, well, I mean, we have to keep going with the mission, right? We're all the way out here, 18 months out from Earth. You know, we've got no choice. We've got to keep going. But what happens if Hal continues to make mistakes? And then Poole's like, we're going to just have to shut him down. Yeah. We're just going to have to reduce his activity to nothing but ship's functions. But Hal sees them talking. The lip reading. He can't hear them. He can read their lips. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. So then there's an intermission, which is really weird because the movie's not that long. It yeah. feels long because of like all the long shots, but it's not that long of a movie. So then there's an intermission. How long is it, do you reckon? It's less than two hours. Yeah. It's about two That's hours. That's surprising they put an intermission in there. Yeah. I think it's just because it's a long-feeling film. Yeah. So he might have felt like um, people might need to get up, get, up, get some more popcorn. Know. Or maybe he wanted them to process what they'd seen yeah, maybe. and prepare for what was going to happen next. Yeah. So what ends up happening next is they go outside to put the module back in and Hal sabotages the entire mission. He takes control of uh, Frank Poole's maintenance pod and sends him flying off into space. And David Bowman has to go out and retrieve the body. By the time Bowman gets back... Hal has taken control of the ship completely. He's murdered the three scientists in hibernation. And when Bowman tries to get back on the ship, Hal is like, I'm not going to let you back on. This conversation can serve no purpose. Yeah. So then Bowman has to actually use the emergency hatch to get back in. And he has to do it without a helmet because he rushed out without a helmet to go and get Poole's body. So mm-hmm. he had to release Poole's body back to space because he had to use the hands on the shuttle to manipulate the hatch. So all that effort was for nothing, although Poole was probably dead anyway. Right, exactly. Bowman gets back. Bowman's just like, I'm not having it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, you I, murdered all these people already. And I can't trust you yeah, anymore. Yeah. So then after that. Right when he gets done dismantling Hal, it's probably one of the most memorable scenes in any movie I've ever seen because it's like Hal is like, you know, I can feel it, Dave. I can feel my mind going. I can feel it. Eventually, it reverts back to the first message he ever said to anyone when he was turned on. I am a Hal 9000 computer. I was developed in Urbana, Illinois. I can sing a song for you. It's called Daisy. Would you like me to sing it? And Bowman's like, yes, Hal, I'd like you to sing it for me. You can tell Hal or Bowman is distressed. At this, because I think he's grasping the concept. Even though Hal's a computer, he's killing a member of the crew right. to preserve his own life. Mm-hmm. But as he's singing it, it like it gets slower and slower, like a tape, until eventually it just dies out. Then, right when he gets done killing Hal, a message appears on a monitor inside Hal's memory bank. And it's Dr. Haywood Floyd, who basically says, okay, now that you guys have reached Jupiter space, it's time for me to tell you what's really going on. 18 months ago, we found this thing on the moon and it sent a message to Jupiter and we need you to go investigate it. Well, Bowman's at Jupiter now. Now, this is the important thing. They show a tile that says Jupiter and beyond the infinite. Mm-hmm. And it's very important that beyond the infinite, that carries a meaning to it. There's a monolith floating in space. It's a really weird transition because it shows you the monolith, it shows you the discovery reaching Jupiter. And it shows you the moons of Jupiter and the planets on the sun all in alignment. And the monolith is somewhere in that alignment with them. Right. They don't show Bowman go out to the monolith. But like they show that scene of, of the planets in alignment with the monolith. And then the next thing you know, Bowman is in a pod. And he's going through this like weird computer 
journey of like all these colors and sights and sounds and weird like liquid blobs of different shapes and things passing by him. Yeah. And it's like 20 minutes of this just sort of psychedelic trip of him going through something. And it's all this really unusual imagery, just light shows and, and light effects and what look to be like liquid effects. It's like this weird trippy kaleidoscope. Yeah. And eventually he's going over planets that have. Is it really like 20 minutes? Maybe like 10 minutes. It's a long time. Wow. I can't really say. I haven't seen it in ages. I remember it happening, but I don't remember like, I couldn't tell you how long it was. People don't understand the purpose of the journey. And I didn't really understand why it had to have all that in it either until I saw it on the big screen this time. Yeah. Uh, at least I believe my interpretation. So what ends up happening is. That's the thing. I think this movie is up for a little interpretation. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, what, what the hell just happened? <laughs> He ends up in this room. It looks like a giant hotel room, like a really fancy hotel room. And he gets out of the pod and he's older. He's like aged. And he sees a person eating dinner at a table and the person turns around and it's him, Mm -hmm. even older. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like Bowman, the astronaut, becomes Bowman, the guy in the room. And it shows him like looking in the mirror and walking around his room and stuff like that. And then it shows him on his deathbed. And then, just as he's about to die, a monolith appears in front of him. Yep. It's just there in the room with him. And then the next thing they do is they show he is reborn. And he's reborn as like this sort of creepy looking infant with like eyes that are like aware. Like you don't know what he's thinking, but it's it's an infant. But the eyes look like the eyes of something that is aged beyond countable time. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm aged beyond the infinite right so then at the end it shows the earth and then it shows david bowman well now they call him the star child they show the star child they don't call him the star child in the movie but if you've ever read any of the reference material about the movie that that's what he is the star child it shows him floating over earth and there's this really long pan of you looking in the star child's eyes it's just looking at the audience And then the movie goes to black and then you get the credits. Mm -hmm. Whenever I watched the movie on the small screen, I always interpreted the film as being about evolution. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's true anymore. I don't think the movie's about evolution. I don't think it's about the evolution of life. I think the movie's about the evolution of consciousness. When the ape picks up the bone, it changes the circumstances of its existence by becoming conscious of something that is outside of the box of its reality. Mm -hmm. It goes beyond the boundaries of what it has known all of its existence to achieve something new. Mm -hmm. When Hal murders the crew, what Hal is doing is preserving his own existence by killing off threats. It's something that should be outside the programming capacities of a computer. Just like, those apes at the beginning had a quote-unquote programming capacity, and the one that picks up the bone goes beyond, beyond Yeah, Hal goes beyond what he should be able to do yeah. by murdering the crew. Because when he's being killed, he's acting like a child. He doesn't understand what he's done, and now he's afraid. But the point is, he dared to go beyond his programming and achieve something. That journey that Bowman takes... That is Bowman moving beyond the boundaries of his existence. It's the best way we could show that to 
a human. Yes. And I think that the movie is basically... How do we depict something that we don't even understand? Right. Well, it's a trippy light show. (laughs) Right, exactly. I think that you're supposed to interpret it for yourself what those things mean. Yeah. Because it's going to be different for every person. But the point is you're going beyond the boundaries of your existence. But here's the irony. They spend all this time moving from that point to that room where Bowman grows old and dies. Yeah. But think about this. You get there and it's just a room. Yeah. And what does he do? He eats... He looks in the mirror, he walks around, and he dies. What the movie is basically saying is this is your existence. This is your life. You came all this way from the dawn of time. And what do you do with it? You eat, you sleep, you shit. You're not really pushing yourselves anymore. Mankind isn't really moving beyond the comfortable capacities it's set for itself. Mm -hmm. When Bowman's dying and he sees the monolith... He realizes that Mm. and he moves beyond it. His consciousness moves beyond the boundaries of normal humanity, moves beyond the infinite. Mm -hmm. Like whatever the human brain can perceive, those endless possibilities, Bowman has moved even beyond that. That's what beyond the infinite means. He's gone beyond anything that we could possibly imagine. He's gone well past that point by becoming the star child. To something that human beings can't comprehend. Anything that we can imagine is a part of our infinite consciousness. He's beyond that. Did he uh, direct as well as write the film? Uh, I I don't don't know if he wrote the film. Hmm. He may have written the film. He may have co-written it. I know Arthur C. Clarke did the novelization, but I don't know if Arthur C. Clarke wrote the original story. I I think he did. I just don't know. I'm only looking at it from the movie point of view, not the book. I know that people have said, read the book, it'll make more sense. But I'm interpreting the movie as its own entity. Right. And I think what Kubrick is basically saying in the movie is, as long as we continue to live comfortably within the boundaries of our own existence, as long as we aren't pushing boundaries, as long as we aren't expanding beyond what we're comfortable with, we're never going to be more than this. Yeah. So see... Hal murdering those people is a horrible thing, but there's a hopeful aspect to it in that he is moving beyond the boundaries of his existence, just like the ape was moving beyond the boundaries of its existence by picking up the bone. So it's not a movie about evolution. It's a movie about evolution of the mind. Yeah, I haven't seen it in so long, but, you know, I always hear people talking about it, like, what does that ending mean? And just sitting here talking about it with you, it seems pretty clear cut to me. But like you said, it's up up to interpretation for some people, maybe. I think finally I understand the point of the movie. Like I never really got it. Like I always used to say, oh, it's evolution. The monolith shows up when it's time for people to evolve. It's just not that simple because the monolith never shows up for Hal. Yeah. I I mean, I couldn't even give you the the answer of evolution because it's been so dang long since I've seen it. But it kind of makes me want to watch it again. But I know it's a slow burn in like some spots. But I think that the Hal stuff is the stuff that has influenced Hollywood more than anything else. Oh, yeah, sure. You know, the, the, the killer computer, yes. which, of course, that's also the science fiction trope from, like, forever. Yeah. Well, a lot of that stuff is is used over and over. That song and that, you know, the mm-hmm. monolith. I've seen that parodied and things, you know. That's how Mystery Science Theater ended. When they left Comedy Central and went to the Sci-Fi Channel, the last episode on Comedy Central was uh, Dr. Forrester seeing his older self and he was eating and then the monolith. But instead of the monolith, it's a videotape that says the worst movie ever made. And, <laughs> and then he turns into a baby. And then that's when 
Mrs. Forrester has the baby, and then she becomes the bad guy on the Sci-Fi Channel. Uh, I so see. they totally, yeah, they, they totally aped it. aped it. It makes sense that they would want to ape it too. Isn't their ship kind of sort of based on the? Uh, yeah, the it's Cinescope? a big bone. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I think I needed to see the movie on the big screen. And here's another thing: I went and saw it by myself. Yeah. A friend of mine was supposed to join me for it, but he injured his foot, and I didn't know that okay. he wasn't able to show up. So I'm sitting there in the movie theater, and there are people all around me that are watching the movie too. But like, I'm just watching it by myself. I'm not interacting with anyone. I'm not talking about the technical aspects of the movie. I'm just sitting there soaking it all right, in. Right, right, right. For the first time ever, the movie completely clicked with me. Yeah. In the past, I would have said, oh, yeah, it's a, pretty, it's a movie that's got some pretty interesting concepts, but there's some pretty boring parts to it, too. <laughs> right. I think those boring, That's how I looked at it, yeah. Those slow parts, they were necessary for me in order to decompress what I had just experienced in the scene preceding yeah. it. That's the thing, though, with you. You have a way of finding, like, deeper meaning in things that I never could. Like, I'll see certain things, and you'll say, oh, I, you know, I feel like it was about this and this, and I'll be like, it was cool. <laughs> uh, and many times making me see the deeper meaning behind it is this. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I never thought of it that way. It seems like something like this is, like, right up your alley. I get frustrated whenever I'm told something is classic or important or relevant work. Yeah. Robinson Crusoe. It's a story about a dude that gets stranded on an island and he gets a slave and they fend off pirates and then they get rescued. Yeah. Like, you know, that's all it's about. But the thing is, it's considered a classic work because there are themes in it that are important to our growth as a culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anytime somebody tells me this book is really important or this movie is really important or this play is something that everyone needs to see once before they die or something like that. I always want to try to understand why that is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is something classic because you're telling me it's classic? What does it mean to me? Well, these works clearly mean something because they continue to endure. It's why I have a copy of Citizen Kane. You do? Yeah. And damn it, I'm going to watch it someday. <laughs> That's pretty funny. But I do have it. And I'm going to watch it. But I understand what you're saying. Before, it was just like, this is weird. Like, there's these monkeys and then space. Yeah, I used and to. And then a dude floating, and now I don't, man. I always used to marvel at the scenes on the Discovery when Hal and Frank were interacting with, and Dave were all interacting with each other. Yeah. Like, that sense of isolation. I thought that Kubrick captured the journey, the slow crawl through space. Yeah. Very, very well. That's not even really the point of those scenes. It's just like setting the stage, right. setting the table for something much larger. Yeah. I think that even now it's a difficult movie to watch. I was watching it with the intention of figuring it out. Like you might sit down to figure out Garage Band. I'm like, okay, I'm going to sit down. By the end of it, I'm going to understand yeah, this yeah. movie. And I came to a personal epiphany about yeah. it. So That's cool. It's iconic, man. We may sound like old fogies even talking about this thing, but, you know, it's just one of those things. If it's been parodied, that means it's been loved. You know, that means it's it's ingrained in culture. We already cited a few. Airplane 2. Remember when yeah. the computer puts the guy out in the in space and he's floating out there? You know, that's from yep. 2001, man. Or the scene in uh, History of the World Part 1. History of the World Part 1, yeah. The, the apes, the apes. jacking off. It's like, that's, that's right. A, that's a parody of that's, the beginning of 2001. Yeah. It's it's out there, man. And that's music, you know, I mean, that's been used yeah. a million times yep, over. Yep. Uh, Rick Flair uses it as his ring entrance. There you go. It's perfect. You know, the movie's something else. I mean, I you know, I I'd have a hard time saying there's a more important work in Kubrick's life. I think that stands as Kubrick's most important work. Yeah. 
I would have to say. I mean, I always see like the box set, like a you know wherever I'm shopping yeah. at, of like all of his movies together. I have an old white box set. Hmm. It's got like a Clockwork Orange. It's got 2001. It's got. Dr. Is it VHS? Uh, no, mine. <laughs> so it's actually like, sort of new. Mine is DVD, but it's the old DVD where it's those cardboard cases with the plastic clasps. Oh yeah, yeah. The you know, clip, the clip, yeah. The clip. It's yeah. it's that. Yeah. It's like all of those. It's like it's like 2001, Clockwork Orange, Lolita, Doctor Strange Love. And Barry Lyndon. Okay. Which Barry Lyndon's sort of the dark horse of that because yeah. all the rest of those movies are very well known. Yeah. But like, where's Spartacus? Yeah. You know? Barry Lyndon actually turned to be my, my favorite movie of that collection up until now, which 2001 is probably my favorite Kubrick movie. Mm. Oh, and also um, Full Metal Jacket is on there too. Oh, cool. But I can't say that I'll ever watch 2001 again. Like, I might watch it if somebody else wants to watch it, but I'm not going to be like, I'm going to put this in. And watch right, it. right. It's, just, it's not a really entertaining. There movie. are a lot of movies like that where you just like watch them and it's like, okay, I don't need to see that every. Yeah. Uh, Forrest Gump comes to mind. Yeah. Inception, you know. Like, I like those movies, but. Mm-hmm. I could watch A Clockwork Orange over and over and yeah. over again because it's a dark movie, but it's also darkly funny. There right, was like right. some really darkly funny moments, like the scene whenever, just at the very beginning when the drunk is singing in the alley and Malcolm McDowell's narrating, is like, if there's one thing I could never stand, it's when somebody's singing the songs of the youth and going blurp, blurp in between, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and they and they, and like when the when the old guys are like, can you spare some cutter me brothers? I just like that shit's funny to yeah. me. You're like when when the rival gang is about to rape that girl and they all show up. There's this really great scene of like this this gang is on this stage of this like old rundown opera house or something, and they're like trying to rape this girl. And then they show the auditorium, hmm. and it's covered in shadow. And out of the shadow. Alex and his droogs walk out and it's like, they just materialize out of the darkness. Like they're just something spat up from the bowels of hell. And they just, they appear and it's such a masterful shot. But then what ends up following is like Malcolm McDowell. Well, 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 if it isn't fat stinking Billy boy and poison, you know, how art thou thou cheap stinking bottle of chip oil? You know, that's just the director not taking himself too seriously. Like, I'm going to follow up this masterful shot with this. That would never happen in, like, a Christopher Nolan movie. Well, yeah, you're right, because those movies are kind of humorless. I think what what Kubrick is doing is he's like, okay, I need to capture the joie de vivre, as it were, Mm. of these young people. Because they're all young people. They're all in high school. Mm -hmm. I need to capture the sheer joy that they feel at living these decadent criminal lives. They know they're about to get into a street fight, and they love it. And it's fun. Mm-hmm. I need to have dialogue that not only is something that you would believe these characters would say, but something that helps you live vicariously through them. You can feel the chaos. You can feel the swirl and the energy and the fun of it yeah. just by the lilting dialogue that those characters are reciting. You know, come and get one in the yarbles. That is, if you have any yarbles, you eunuch jelly thou. And it's like, it's, just like, <laughs> it's nonsense dialogue, but it's like they're having fun saying it and you're having fun listening to it. And that's the point. Right. While Alex is riding high as a thug, it's like it's entertaining to watch him, even though he's doing unspeakable fucking things. Right. But uh, Alex is having so much fun on this journey that you can't help but go along with it for the ride. Even if you like, you would never do the things that he's you doing. You laugh at the absurdity of it. You laugh at the absurdity it's of like it. It's like playing Grand Theft Auto and running over all the people right. at full speed in the car. You're it's not exa- laughing because you're a murderer. You're laughing exactly because right. this is so ridiculous. That's exactly right. Like You're living a little vicariously... Through him, And there's a little bit of an interesting element there where Alex is forced to watch 
incidents of violence later, but they're devoid of any humor. So they're devoid of anything fun, so he can't enjoy them. And eventually that's what ends up damaging him as a person. You're watching these same scenes. What if you had to watch these scenes devoid of that humor, devoid of that sick, evil joy that the characters feel? Like, what if you were just forced to watch that over and over? You might end up finding it revolting, too. Kubrick is just, he knew what he was doing. Whether you like it or not. Master of the craft, man. Yep. He's no uh, Chewbacca with his back turned to Leia and Ray, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, did you watch the uh, Honest Trailers? No, that? I need to do. Yeah. yeah. You, uh, well, you that, sent me the link. I need to check it out. Yeah. They brought that up as one of, the, one of the things in the movie that was like, you know, oh, look at this. Chewbacca walks right by General Organa. <laughs> you know. So. It's so dumb. Oh, dear. All right. The rest of the movie is good. But, yeah, that, that was a, a Pop, travesty. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to spoil it. I guess that's all she wrote. Very good. You probably should uh, follow us on Twitter and uh, Facebook and YouTube. Mm-hmm. You should probably follow us on all those things. You should probably like and comment on our posts. You're not doing it enough. You're not spreading the word enough. You're not doing enough. If you like our show, own up, man. I expect nothing less. Yeah. A good RPG requires a dedicated group of players. Yeah. And the best podcast in the world deserves... <laughs> people that yeah. are willing to spread I mean, we've already got plenty of listeners, okay? It's not about that. It's about you putting in your due diligence, man. Yeah, put in your due fucking diligence. Yeah. And what are we paying you for? Exactly. Uh, you can call us, right? We had a real yeah. fun time talking, yeah. you know, and I'd we got love engaged. To hear from the listen. I'm hoping, in fact, that by the time this podcast gets published, we'll have some more calls. That's true, yeah. hope so. Uh, 773-492-2642. That's the phone number. Gaming AM hotline. I assure you. Denny will never answer it. Add a little bit to your mother next time. <laughs> elaborate. Mean, yeah, you yeah, got to give elaborate. us more, man. I'm expecting the person that did that, if they're listening to this, to just be go completely off the rails. And that's fine. But, yeah. I mean, you know, it wasn't much of a talking point. Yeah, it was. Yeah, didn't uh, have much up there. Um, be sure to uh, check out the shop, Rad Repro, repro.rad.tv. Got a ton of new items up there. They're selling like hotcakes. So you got to get in there quick and get some of that stuff. A lot of uh, good new stuff. A lot of stuff up to come. You were just asking me about Castlevania 2 for uh, NES. Castlevania, oh, wait, Castlevania 3 is what I was asking. 2. No, you said 2. The uh, the Simon's Quest with the... Uh, you haven't put that up before? The safe patch. No, yeah. I haven't built that one yet. So oh. you were asking me about that. Yeah, that, no, because so. I want that. Because yeah. I got my blinking light win finally. That's right. Yeah, it took like 400 years to get it. But... Uh, Finally got it. Reminds me of that MC Chris review of Resident Evil 4 versus Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> I didn't see so much as a blinking light win for like 4 million years. That's going back, man. That's an old one. They, yeah, look that one up on YouTube. That's a good one. Yeah, uh, I think on their YouTube it's MC Pants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's MC Chris. Okay. He's talking about the comparisons between Resident Evil 4 and Kingdom Hearts 2. Yeah. So, yeah, check out the shop, repo.rad.tv. A lot of good stuff there. Lots of good stuff coming. Tom's making me build stuff for him that uh, is reminding me that I need to get more of that out there. So that's cool. That's going to happen soon. And you can follow me at, at Tom Tolios on Twitter. Yeah. You can visit my Facebook page if you want to friend me. You'll be lucky if you get accepted, though. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, Denny. He didn't even accept Denny's friend request. That's because Denny's not allowed to have Facebook. <laughs> I'd be a hypocrite if I accepted his Facebook friend request. He's got like a Motorola flip phone. He doesn't even have the internet on it. Like a Razor flip phone. It doesn't really matter because that phone doesn't have any working lights on it and he (laughs) works in the dark, so. It doesn't matter. Also, you can visit us online at uh, GamingAM.com where Mm -hmm. I publish blogs and where our podcasts go up. Yeah, that's right. 
And occasionally I do write articles for Operainfall, www.operainfall.com. Android people, remember? Uh, oh, yeah? You're on uh, Google Play now. Yeah, we're on Google So, like, Play. Uh, you know, if you have iPhone or iPad or anything like that, chances are you're going to listen to it on iTunes. That's probably the best way to listen to us. iDevices have that built-in podcast player, but you can also listen, like, right on an iPhone. Uh, the cool thing, too, about the, uh, the built-in player is that you can uh, speed it up. So you can play it at, like, 1.5x speed, mm-hmm. and we sound fucking awesome. I'm going to play a clip next episode of us at, like, 1.5x speed or 2x speed. And then there's one where you can go slower. So if you're, like, dumb and you can't follow us because we talk too fast, mm-hmm. you can slow it down. That's hilarious. We sound so hilarious at half speed. I can't wait. Because it's the same pitch. So we just sound like we're kind of fucking retarded <laughs> and we talk like It's so funny. That alone is reason enough to uh, listen on the uh, Apple Podcast Player. But if you have an Android device now, Google's finally rolled out their long-rumored podcast support in Google Play Music. So now if you got an Android phone or Android tablet, you can fire up the built-in app, listen to us right on there just as easily as uh, you could on uh, the iPhone or the iPad. But if you don't have any of that stuff and you just want to listen to us through the archaic web interface, you certainly can do that at GamingAM.com, like Tom said. And, uh, you know, it doesn't matter how you listen, as long as you listen. We'll keep churning out some some funny stuff for you. So that's it. All right. Okay, Bison. Yeah. You can come now. Yeah, he's having trouble with the stick shift. Let's get this over with. I got to go take a piss. He's grinding gears a little bit there. (laughs) There he's got to go. Now he's hit. He's he's, grinding my gears. Yeah, exactly. So uh, episode seven, man. Gaming game. Yeah, we got it, man. Which is where M. Bison likes it. That's, yeah. Well, you got to go use the can now, too, yeah, it sounds exactly. like. So, <laughs> greatest podcast in the world, man. I'm Ray Price. I'm Tom Tolios. We'll catch you next time. Chase